Hey everyone, Ben here. As advertised, this is a season preview podcast. After a bit of banter, we're going to be talking about the Angels and the Red Sox. But I wanted to let you know that at the end of the episode, there is an unscheduled edition because just as I was about to put this podcast to bed, I got a call from Joe West, the MLB umpire who retired prior to the 2022 season after umpiring the most major league games ever. He was back in the news this week because of a semi-viral Reddit thread pointing out that it appeared that Joe West had been editing his own Wikipedia page, which of course goes against Wikipedia policy. It sparked a lot of discussion and speculation. We talked about it a bit on our previous episode, and it made me curious. So I reached out to Joe West, whom I had never spoken to before, and somewhat unexpectedly, he reached back out to me. So if you're here for that portion of the podcast, check the timestamp. We have about a 20-minute chat later in the episode, and if you wish, you can skip straight to it. But before Cowboy Joe, on with the show. Welcome to episode 1967 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I feel as if I've found the fountain of youth, actually. Oh. Because you know how you have a, a tendency during a certain portion of your life to compare your age to baseball players' ages yeah. and judge your own nearness to immortality by how many baseball players there are who have your age or are older than you, right? Yep. So when you near the end of your teen years and you get into your 20s, I mean, suddenly you think to yourself, I could be a big leaguer by now if I had the talent and the dedication. And maybe that makes you feel bad about yourself, but at least you can kind of judge where you are. And then you get to a certain age where the ranks start to thin out and there aren't a whole lot of big leaguers left who are your age or older. We're not quite there, but we're getting there. I certainly thought we were at the point where big leaguers our age would not be signing several year extensions. However, AJ Preller has proved me wrong <laughs> because you <laughs> Darvish, who is our age, yeah. he is uh, just a few months older than I am. He has signed a long-term extension. So how about that? We have how not aged out that? of our long-term extension period of our lives. <sighs> I feel like this is this is payback for all of the Fridays and Saturdays of my life that AJ has taken from me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, he's like, listen, Meg, I know that I've inconvenienced you and your writers at various points throughout your professional career. And mm -hmm. I feel a little bit badly about that. And uh, it turns out I have this great pitcher, and I'd yeah. like him to stick around for a while. So what if he got a six-year extension? We announced it on a Thursday, and you felt good about yourself. Win, yeah. win, win. I know. I feel so young and vital. I mean, the yeah. future is just stretching out endlessly in front of us. <laughs> Teams could make a long-term bet on people our age. Right. How about that? I mean, How about it is that? extension season or getting to be extension season. I'm sure there will be many more extensions signed prior to opening day. I was not thinking of you Darvish as an obvious extension candidate. And I had to kind of do a double take when I saw the terms of this thing, six year extension that runs through the 2028 season. I had to remind myself, how old is you Darvish again? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. He, he is actually, he's 36 and a half or so. He will turn 37 in August. It's not the typical pitcher that you would hand out an extension such as this one too. But 
He is a, a very fun pitcher and a very productive pitcher. He's coming off a, a strong season, and he is one of the more aesthetically pleasing pitchers. And Preller's always pushing the envelope, and I guess this is a, an example of that. It, it surprised me because of the age and also because next winter promises a, a pretty strong pitcher market. Yeah. Not position player free agent market, but pitchers specifically, it, it seems like there will be options. I mean, maybe they'll all sign extensions before yeah. then, but at least in theory, you had Darvish, you have Otani, you have Arias, you have Aaron Nola, you have Blake Snell, you might have Max Scherzer, Sonny Gray, Jack Flaherty, Lucas Giolito, Michael Bauman just wrote about this the other day, yeah. and there have been some recent reports just surfacing that the best pitcher in Japan over the past several seasons, Yoshinobu Yamamoto, he might be posted as well following the 2023 season. And then there could be a huge sweepstakes for him as there will be for Otani. So there will be some pitching out there. So I would have thought that you would wait and see how Darvish's season went before you decided to do this. But that's uh, not the Padres way. It's not the Preller way to wait and see (laughs) and and take the conservative route. Yeah. You know, um, he hasn't he's not someone you'd sit there and go. He doesn't he doesn't like to go fast. He likes to go slow. It's a measured approach. Yeah, that's yeah. how I would describe AJ Preller's modus operandi. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, like you know, plotting, methodical, mm-hmm. deliberate. Um, yeah, deliberate. You know, so we wouldn't say that about him. No. We could say a lot about him, but that probably mm-hmm. would not be the way that we would describe him. You know. Yeah, Darvish will be forty-two. By the time this contract ends now, as with all these uh, long term deals, it's not necessarily the case that the team expects the player to still be playing or still be productive at that point. And this is partly, I guess, sort of a CBA gaming. Yeah, I was going to say there's a little bit of there's a little bit of (laughs) Texas in that probably. Right. Which uh, reportedly the Padres were trying to do with Judge or considered doing with a 14 year (laughs) offer for Judge or something like that. And and this one. So it's it's front loaded. Right. So it's uh, it's a six year extension. And I guess it it kicks in after this current season for which Darvish is already under contract, but he will earn thirty million in twenty twenty three under this extension, mm-hmm. which uh, replaces his original deal. He was going to be making eighteen million for this year, and that means that it will be a seventy eight million dollar deal over the final five seasons because it basically tax on five years and and 90 million of new money, I guess, but it kind of tears up the per season salary. So if it's just five years and 78 after this year, that's 15.6 million per year. That's not a lot. And even if Darvish uh, doesn't stay healthy and productive throughout the entire time, if he does for half that time, potentially, if he's still pitching at a high level, I, I guess it might make sense. And Also, with the CPA, he'd be pretty tradable under these terms because now you can trade a player and the CBA hit to the new team is just the remainder of the player's contract counts toward the luxury tax, not the entire thing. So he would be more affordable for the remainder of the contract. So there's that. Again, I don't know why they felt they needed to get this done immediately, but as we said, they don't tend to take their time. And Darvish, is, uh, he's great. He's fun. He's coming off a great year, and the Padres certainly need him to continue to pitch at that level. So wasn't expecting to see that news today. But here, here we are. Here we are mm-hmm. seeing it. And, you know, he does, like, uh, as a pitcher, 
and person candidly look great. So, you know, oh, yeah. good for good for you. Absolutely. Yes. A, a role model for our, our mid-30s people in, <laughs> in more than one way. Um, well, let's see. I have uh, more realistic expectations of myself, both in terms of uh, how I will age and my ability to throw literally a billion pitches. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay. But uh, yeah, he uh, he's, he's going to be a fixture there for a long time. And I think that that's exciting. Yeah. And if the 10 or 11 pitches he currently throws, if some of them start to tail off, then, you know, he can just uh, work a few more into well, the repertoire. Is, this is the thing. It's like, <laughs> you know, if ever you're going to be confident, it's like, that guy, he'll find something that works almost certainly. Yeah, you, you know? think. Right. You think. And again, like you said, it doesn't have to be for the whole time. Mm-hmm. It just has to be for enough of the time for them to you know, catch the Dodgers once or twice. So yeah, he's had some injury issues, but they seem to be behind him now. Yeah. And and he's uh, someone who keeps himself in shape, as you were perhaps just alluding to. So yeah, yeah I hope yeah. there's a, a long and productive <laughs> and and rich, both financially and yeah. on the field, future in front of you, Darvish, and it gives uh, hope to all of us uh, geriatric millennials out there. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> All right, so we have a season preview pod for you all today, and it's uh, the 86 ALCS edition. It's the (laughs) Angels and the Red Sox. I guess we could also call it the 1967 pennant race episode, fittingly, given the episode number. Later in the episode, we will be talking to Alex Spear of the Boston Globe about the Red Sox. And first, we will be talking to Sam Blum of The Athletic about the Angels. Always a subject of some intrigue around these parts and these two teams' uh, similar projections. That is why we are covering them now, according to the Fangraphs Depth Charts team projections. As they stand now, it's a blend of zips and steamer. The Angels with roughly an 83-win projection. The Red Sox roughly an 82-win projection. And they have similar payrolls, too. So a lot of commonalities that will come up over the course of these conversations. And we will get to the first one right now. All right, we are joined now by Sam Blum, who covers the Angels for The Athletic. Maybe I should say rejoined, because it hasn't been that long since the last time we had Sam on. <laughs> Welcome back, Sam. Well, I appreciate you having me back on. Uh, yeah. Beer, yeah. Well, what a difference a couple of weeks makes, right? Because the last time we had you on, which was to talk about the Angels' Spanish language broadcasts, or lack thereof, we devoted part of that conversation to talking about the post-Artie Moreno future of and the it- Angels and... <laughs> how different that might look and how that might change things. And there still will one day be a post-Artem Moreno future of the Angels, but it will not be as soon as we thought. So it was actually the day that we talked to you, yeah. the news broke that Artie had uh, flip-flopped and done a 180, decided actually I'm not going to sell the team. So in the past couple of weeks, what have you learned about the decision-making process there? I remember just talking with you guys and like an hour after they announced it, I was like, oh man, that's going to kind of ruin it. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, it, the decision-making process is a bit of a mystery. I mean, I think that- Indecision-making yeah, process, it, yeah. You know, I think that the Angels are already Moreno and or his friends or his associates that kind of push, put this stuff out there would probably, you know, have, have pushed the narrative that he just kind of got excited about spring training and wanted to, you know- change things up you know I, I can't really say any different i mean i think that it, it's possible there was some sort of you know equation that changed for him maybe beyond that it's hard to know 
you know, I do know that this team would have sold probably for upward of $3 billion, which would have set a record, you know, it would have been certainly above 2.5 and, and, and above the 2.4 billion that Steve Cohen paid for the Mets. So it's, and there's reasons, you know, I mean, the Angels stadium has a lot of potential because it's, it's still on the, this land that's owned by the city in Southern California. So, I mean, there, there was this opportunity to build. I think a lot of people saw, at least the bidders, potential bidders saw an opportunity to come in and 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 change the dynamic uh for how the angels are viewed and you know how they operate and you know how they spend and and there was a lot of excitement i think a lot of fans were excited about that but it it just uh you know here we are right now and and i think it's you know people are upset and i and i totally get it you know already moreno's done the same thing now for 20 years and in particular really the last you know decade plus where things have, have just gotten so ugly and and i think uh you know he he's not going to change as far as I know as far as anybody knows he hasn't certainly certainly hasn't said it to anybody so as long as he doesn't change I don't know how much you can expect the angels to change right yeah and we heard from some angels fans who listened to that segment and yeah. it was uh, sort of cruel <laughs> I guess that <laughs> that that future that they were anticipating was snatched away just as they were listening to us talk about how oh, it might be different in the future and and now it's not going to be at least in the short term so Right. Is there any reason to think that Moreno at least has seen the error of his ways when it comes to not necessarily spending on the major league payroll? Because, uh, again, the Angels are up there, right? I mean, they're, I think, seventh in projected payroll right now. So there have been issues with how that payroll has been allocated, of course. But also, as we discussed last time, organizational issues with uh, how front office people have been treated and scouts and minor leaguers and broadcasters, etc. And, of course, Artie hasn't really been publicly accountable talking to local reporters like you. He did talk to John Heyman briefly at the owners' meetings on Wednesday, right? And basically said, well, we would like to keep Shohei Otani. All right, well, (laughs) who wouldn't, right? But I guess some people were wondering, does this uh, augur a a new Artie? Is he going to be more forthcoming now? Is he going to do things differently? And I guess you, you haven't yet seen anything that would indicate that that's the case. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen, you know, I mean, it's, listen, is he earned the benefit of the doubt? I don't think so. So I'm, I wouldn't give it to him. But I mean, I guess in theory, something could change. The, the real question, and, and it's going to be this inflection point, this change, I mean, in the next year, because Shohei Otani is going to be, is set to be a free agent after the season. And so I think, you know, there's, like you said, there are a lot of ways that I think the Angels fall short. Payroll, you know, they always talk about their high payroll, and, and they do. You're right. They're in the top 10 pretty consistently every year. But I, I also think that the Angels, in order to be successful, you know, they need to spend more either in free agency or on their player development. I mean, I think they fall short in both areas. And so they don't have, you either have to spend to have a, this, you know, team built on free agent superstars, or you need to be able to bring up your own guys. And, and I think they just are in the, they're kind of in a no man's land in both ways. Uh, but, you know, this inflection point will come with Shohei Otani because there is no way to keep him outside of uh, somebody saying, hey, we'll take Anthony Rendon's contract for free or something like that. You know, there's no way to keep him outside of exceeding the luxury tax by a significant margin and really, you know, putting a payroll that's probably, you know, upward of maybe $250, 260000000 million. So that, you know, that's not something that I think Artie Moreno has uh, shown a willingness to do. And so he'll need to show that if he's going to keep Otani and also, you know, pay Mike Trout and Anthony Rendon, who are making upward of, you know, $70 million combined. So it's, you know, it's going to be, you know, maybe a, 
maybe 120 million dollars between three players and then you need to fill out a roster so it's it's there's gonna have to be some sort of change in the equation it's nice that he told john Heyman that he wants to keep otani but everybody would you know there's mm-hmm. not it's not a secret so it would be interesting to see how he's actually going to do that love to ask him about it i'd love to ask him about <laughs> a lot of things i don't I, I hope that people don't see that interview that he gave to Heyman and think that he's now a transparent or or you know forthcoming i, I if i had to guess that interview was done with john probably tailing him it's probably escaping to his car for all i know but you know i would love to have him kind of sit down and, and answer some of these important questions that are uh, you know are i think fans want it's not about me right it's not about me or jeff fletcher or you know the la times or mb.com or whoever it's it's about the fans who i think and you hear from them i hear from them every single day wanting to know stuff and you know it's i want to know it too yeah, it would have been it would have been more newsworthy if he had said, you know, Otani, I'm just lukewarm on that guy. Yeah. <laughs> Take him or leave him. Take yeah. him or leave him. <laughs> we'll get into some of the both the free agent signings that they made this winter and some of the the trades that they did. I think some of which, many of which we liked when we talked yeah. about them because, you know, one of the things that has really felled this roster in recent years is a lack of sort of like solid middle class depth in terms of both their position players and their pitching. But one thing I'm curious about, you know, is how much of the front office's plan for this offseason and sort of their marching orders was predicated on the notion of a sale, right? I'm curious, yeah. you know, if if Perry had known, hey, it turns out Artie's just going to be the owner for the next, you know, while, would they have conducted their offseason differently, do you think, than they ended up doing? I do think so. And I actually think that this whole sale thing probably put them in a position to have a smarter offseason. I liked what they did this offseason in general. I mean, I, th- I think you, you like you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, they they kind of built the roster from a position of we need to add depth such a cliche in sports but it's just they had none of it last year i mean they uh they i saw mike petriello on mlb.com put like a graph out that they had the second most you know second most plate appearances by guys who are non-replacement or under replacement players and so that's just that's what they were i mean they had a couple guys but then they had like if you looked up their lineup every day it was a lot of no names and it was a lot of guys who you know were like the fourth option because the three in front of them had failed. I think where they've improved, and I actually think that that's maybe a reflection of the fact that they didn't feel like they could go out and get a major free agent or they couldn't go out and, you know, sign a a shortstop like the the big four names that are on the market this year. And they had to kind of, you know, put together players that maybe were between one and three years, which is all of their acquisitions, one between one and three years. And only one was three years, Tyler Anderson. So most of the guys that they got were, you know, short-term not significantly expensive, you know, that was smart. That's how they should build, especially when you're trying to have, you know, some some room next year to spend on Otani. And so this was, uh, I thought, a really savvy offseason by Perry Manazzi. And I mean, he's, uh, I think he's got a tough, you know, was dealt a tough hand. I mean, I, you know, I don't feel bad for him. He's the GM of the Angels. He knew what he was getting into with Hardy. But it's a, it's a t- it was a tough situation. And, uh, you know, I think what they what they did think they made good changes on the coaching staff. You know, it was it was a smart offseason, and I do think it would have been different had it not been for the predicament that he kind of that already put them in, but it's, uh, you know, maybe for the best. I mean, we'll see, obviously. I think every year people look at the Angels and can talk themselves into thinking they'll be good, and then it doesn't <laughs> happen. But, you know, yeah, I mean, if I had to guess, I think they'll be at least, you know, in the in the mix for a wild card. 
Yep, I've been in that boat of uh, talking yeah. myself into the Angels, and, <laughs> and I have watched more Angels baseball than any other team over the past few years, just for the the Trout and Otani show, and that has often turned into the Andrew Velasquez show or whoever, you know, <laughs> not to single out anyone in particular, but some of the... <laughs> but to <laughs> except, single out someone in particular. Yeah, we like, we like good, Squid. Nice guy. Yeah, he's got a good glove, yeah. right? But yeah. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so some of the, the sub-replacement level plate appearances and, and the batters and the lack of depth, uh, especially once injuries cropped up as they have the past couple of years. It was not the most watchable team when Shohei Otani was not on the screen or Mike Trout for that matter. So it does seem like amid the already audible, yes, a, a lot of these moves kind of, whether they were constrained by spending or ownership uncertainty or whether they were just pitched toward raising the floor, that does seem to be what they have accomplished here. And I think the Angels infield situation is pretty fascinating, right? Yeah, because if really. anything, it seems like they have too many options now, which is certainly better than having too few, which was the case before. I guess you could say that none of their options maybe is a, a slam dunk at shortstop and maybe they end up with multiple third basemen, it seems like, but there's at least redundancy here or redundancy. Does that, oh, like is that. that, is that anything? Anyway, Man, I might have to steal that for a headline. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's all yours. If you want to get yourself in trouble there, but yeah. ben, um, you've been, you've been hanging out with me for too long. I know, but, but tell us how you think this will shake out because yeah. I, I guess on, like on the roster resource page right now, you have Renhifo listed as the starting shortstop. He certainly played well last year, but there's no real prototypical shortstop, I guess is the issue. I mean, you have people who've played shortstop. You have Urshela. You have Fletcher, etc. And at least for now, you have Rendon and you have Drury. I mean, there are a lot of people who can play a lot of different positions there. So, who do you think ends up with the playing time, at least, to start things off before they're forced to go to Plan B and Plan C when injuries occur? I really think this Angels team is going to be very like you're going to see like maybe 162 different lineups. I mean, it's just you know, and the and it's it's a mix and match type of team. Uh, and I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. You're right that they did not they do not have a prototypical shortstop. That being said, I do think the way Luis Renifo played earned him an opportunity to to get that starting job. I think you know, I mean, he's you know, it was half a season and a and a tough you know tough stretch for the Angels, but he played very well and he kind of showed I think a lot of the potential that that he's always really had attached with, uh, you know, attached to him. You know, the way you have to also consider the fact that, you know, Rendon and Walsh are both coming off of injuries, pretty significant injuries. Uh, you know, Walsh had thoracic outlet syndrome and, you know, Rendon last two years ago had the hip, last year had the wrist. So I'm guessing that they're both going to be getting a lot of time off. And, I, and if I had to guess, Jared Walsh is going to be a straight platoon player, really. I mean, I don't think he's going to, I mean, he, he got better against lefties, but there's the way that they acquired this offseason makes me think that they're probably going to use you know, Brad Drury, Gio Rochella, probably a mix and match there at first base, you know, as uh, as needed. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw, you know, Brandon Drury also go to the outfield. I mean, uh, Brett Phillips is their backup outfielder, but, you know, he had 140 last year. And you also kind of need, in theory, two backup outfielders at times. And so it's, you know, I, I could see him getting that the, those opportunities out there at times. You know, I could see David Fletcher probably coming in as a defensive replacement quite a bit and, you know, probably getting a good number of starts at at second and short. And so they'll, they'll probably just kind of use everybody interchangeably in a lot of ways. And, you know, uh, will that, if everybody's healthy, will there be some players that maybe don't get the playing time that they want? I would, I would think so. But, you know, that's a good problem to have. 
I think that the Angels would sign up for that good problem right now. So it's it's uh, more likely than not we're probably going to be like you know talking about Jack Mayfield at shortstop by like May again. So who knows? You know, it's, <laughs> it's very we're, we're sitting here on on February 9th. It's very easy to kind of yeah you know project these things. But the, the infield overall, you know, it's it doesn't have a prototypical shortstop, but I think overall it's a pretty good infield. I mean, it's it's uh, you know I think it it measures up. I want to ask about a member of the outfield who isn't Mike Trout. We just want to defy expectations for effectively wild. But <laughs> but talk about a guy who we spent a lot of time uh, talking about last year, and not just because we were perpetually confused which one he was on our roster. But <laughs> we weren't always confused. Broadcasters were confused. <laughs> sometimes we were confused. Ben. Sometimes us too. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes we were a little confused. I looked yep. it up every single time before <laughs> we talked about it to make sure I was talking about the right guy. But the guy I want to talk about is Taylor Ward. And I thought that's who this would be. <laughs> Yeah, not, not Walsh, not, but Ward. Right. <laughs> it, was Brand, it was Brandon Marsh, Jared Walsh. It was always very tough. Yes. Yeah, we had we had a lot of confusion, and now we have Hunter Renfro and Mike Trout, whose names are different, but whose faces are exactly the same. Yep. It's yep. going to be quite a thing. So Ward, I don't want to say that Ward wasn't good in limited time in 2021. You know, he put up a 110 WRC+, plus, but I think his performance in 2022 exceeded certainly my expectations and I think a lot of other people. So what are your expectations for him coming into this season? What version of Ward do you think we end up getting? You know, Taylor Ward had a really interesting year last year. He was probably the best hitter in baseball for April. I mean, he was insanely good. And then in September, the same story. You know, he had several freak injuries, you know, throughout the year last year, including one where he just crashed into a wall going for a going for a ball and, and it just he had like it was like a stinger like he really couldn't throw properly and it was and and he you know came out and said in the middle of the season that it was impacting his bat speed which is you know he's the way he play I mean the way anybody plays I think that's a incredibly important and relevant factor in how you perform but you know he's really a timing kind of player I mean in terms of the way he's, he takes a lot of pitches you know I think he kind of is really the kind of player that waits for his pitch in a way that uh maybe I'm not describing super well right now but you know he's he, I think he could be the player that we saw in April and September if he's healthy fully healthy you know what I'm, it's hard to describe exactly what changed for him I mean he's been the, he's been kind of moved around a ton in the Angels organization came up as a catcher put at third base you know and then the outfield so it's you know, and I don't think it's been easy for him to kind of adapt and adjust to that throughout the years. And maybe he kind of hit his comfort zone last season. But really, I think it came down to just the way he his approach of the plate. I mean, if you talk to him, he's, you know, he's a very zen, you know, he's the kind of guy that likes to read a, a self-help book or, or like a, you know, mindset book and and just kind of get locked in and, and not, you know, necessarily, uh, I don't know, he's just he's just an interesting guy. Like, he's, it's I know I'm not really explaining it that well. But if you talk to him, you know exactly what I'm saying. And so yeah, I mean, I think he could have that type of year again. I, I really do. I mean, I think he could be an all star. That's the kind of player he, he showed himself to be. And uh, there's no reason why if he's if he doesn't have these issues, that he, that he can't perform at a very high level. I mean, he's very young. And he's, he's coming off his best season. And, and um, this is he's he's someone who I really think can break out. And importantly, he is not named Tyler Wade. So that was, yeah. That was keeps yeah. that yes. locked in. Not Tyler Wade. No. Tyler. Yeah. So yes. as for Trout, after we were all briefly terrified by the quotes from the Angels trainer who came out and, and led us all to believe. That was quite briefly, a day. <laughs> yeah, that uh, Mike Trout might never be the same again before that was walked back mercifully. And then concerns were allayed when Mike Trout returned and 
played like Mike Trout. And whenever he was on the field last year, which was most of the time, not as much as Angels fans would have liked him to be, but certainly a lot more than the previous season, he was still probably the best player in baseball, you know, aside from perhaps his teammate Shohei Otani and Aaron Judge having his unbelievable season. But he was still himself. He was still Mike Trout. And in fact, at least judging by the defensive metrics, DRS, OAA, et cetera, he performed better in center field than he had in the couple of seasons leading up to that. And and that had been a topic of conversation heading into last spring, whether Mike Trout might move to a corner. And it seemed like Joe Madden bungled that a bit by seemingly raising that possibility publicly before actually talking to Trout about it. But has that subsided just because of his performance that we're not even really thinking about him moving anytime soon? And are there any lingering concerns about the back at all? Is this something that should even be in the back of minds of Angels fans anymore? Well, I mean, I don't think it's as big a conversation this year because in theory, the starting outfield would be Taylor Ward and Hunter Renfro. And so those those guys are more prototypical corner outfielders to begin with. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you have, you know, Brett Phillips, who I think will probably, I mean, Mike Trout, if I had to guess, is, you know, he's someone that probably won't be playing, you know, 150 games would be ideal. I think that would be kind of a max for him. You know, mm-hmm. it's probably going to be lower and that's for the best. You know, I mean, is the, the he said the back is not an issue. Um, he said that a couple of weeks ago, no, non-issue hasn't felt it in months. You know, he also hasn't played baseball every day in months. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, once he gets through this, it's, it's really tough to know. I mean, if, if it's the kind of thing that's just, if he plays on it a lot, if he's, you know, does one thing the wrong way, if it could, if it could come back, you know, you're right. Those quotes were concerning by, uh, you know, Mike Frostad and, and they were walked back and they were, and the fears were allayed, as you said, but I mean, it's, I don't think the trainer said that out of thin air, you know what I mean? So it's mm-hmm. I, I definitely something to, to be cognizant of, uh, you know, Mike probably knows his body better than anyone. And so I trust him when he says those things and that he's good, that he's healthy, that he's, you know, he's good to go. You know, it's the corner outfield situation will probably, you know, I don't know if it'll be an issue this year, if it's going to come up this year, but, you know, I think in the future, especially in the not too distant future, it's something they really need to consider. I mean, Mike Trout is is under contract for quite a long time, and you need him to be as durable as possible. And I think that durability has, to some extent, come into question the last couple of years because he's missed a lot of time. You know, he had it when he was on the field last year; he was insanely good. But there were stretches where he was insanely bad. I mean, he had like an 0 for 26. He struck out like you know like seven or eight straight right. times at one point. Right before so, he went on the IL, yeah, he was yeah. looking bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And even earlier in the year too, he had a stretch mm-hmm. in May. So, so it's you know the questions about Mike Trout are fair, but you know he's the way he performed on the field, especially last year. I mean, he's he's still one of the best in baseball, probably top you know five, ten player in baseball, and and you know will go down as maybe the best ever. So for what he's done the first decade of his career, and and you know certainly we'll have a you know, first ballot Hall of Fame career. So it's for right now, I think he's the center fielder in the maybe the next year, year after that, they're going to be having more serious conversations about, you know, where he's viable to play defensively. But for now, I mean, his health seems good. There's not really any questions about it. I just think that it's something they're going to need to monitor very closely throughout this season. Yeah, and Phillips seems like a an ideal fit for this team in that you have three right-handed hitting outfielders and then Phillips is a lefty, not that you have him out there for his bat. I mean, he's hit better than he did last season in previous yeah. seasons, but good glove and good vibes guy and great vibes. Good, yeah, <laughs> good defensive <laughs> replacement. Hopefully he won't have to replace Mike Trout on a starting basis, but we will see. So, I want to talk about another up the middle position catcher. 
where there's some uncertainty, I suppose. So you had Max Stassi, who had a great 2021 offensively and defensively, earned himself an extension and then took huge steps back on both sides of the ball last year. And by the end of the year, Logan Ohapi had arrived, which was pretty aggressive, right? Yeah. He's uh, turning 23 today. Happy birthday, Logan O'Happy. Oh, I didn't but, know that. Yeah. So tell us what the outlook is at this position and whether it's it's reasonable. I mean, if you look at the projections, I, I think basically everyone in the Angels starting lineup is projected to be an above average hitter, including O'Happy, but there's more uncertainty about someone with so little experience. So how much can they trust him and what kind of a defensive catcher do they think he is? I mean, I think that he's probably going to be, I mean, do I think he's going to be the starting catcher out of spring training? I'd be surprised. I mean, you know, they are paying Max Dassey a decent amount of money. I mean, like you said, he had that extension and he's making over $7 million so this year. And, and so, you know, there's no reason to think they're, that the Angels are going to be quick to to take him out. You know, and, and Max did take a big step back, not just offensively. I mean, he hit 180 last year, but he also, I'm sure you guys hate batting average. I'm sorry for, for even mentioning it, but. <laughs> it has its uh, place. No, I mean, yeah, w- when it's that low, it's. It's uh, instructive. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. not a great sign. Yeah. It's it, the, other, the other number. Uh, that was the one I knew off the top of my head, but if I'm sure if I look back at, you know, <laughs> WRC plus, it wasn't very good either. So. No. Uh, <laughs> but it's, you know, and, and Logan O'Hoppy is very young. He's, but he really hadn't played. He, he came up great from double A. I do think he's going to be the starter by the middle of the season. And to answer your question about def- defensively, I mean, I, he's he's got a good. He, he's got. I think he's not going to be the best defensive catcher in baseball, but you know, I, he he's got a good pop time. He's, I think he's pretty good. Uh, you know, framer. I think he works well. I mean, what the pitchers said from you know the fir- the first four or five starts that he had at the end of last season. You know, everybody was really complimentary of him working with them and, and developing a game plan. And even Max Dassey was really complimentary of him. And, and I think that this is, it's good to have a guy like Max. Max is, is, you know, and I know this might sound somewhat cliche, but I mean, he's the kind of guy you want to have maybe bringing up a young catcher who's going to replace him. It's He's not the kind of person that's going to get egotistical about it. And so it's, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, if, if Logan's getting majority of the starts or if they're kind of splitting things up, you know, you know, and Max is probably going to be catching Otani. Uh, that's that worked really well. That's probably not going to change. And so at the very least, you know, he'll be getting one start. And, and I, I, I would if I, I had to venture a guess, he'd probably, you know, probably three and three each week would probably make a lot of sense for the, just uh, the way this roster is constructed right now. Don't want to forget about Matt Dice. I mean, I wouldn't think it's impossible for him to start the season on the opening day roster if they do not think Logan Ohapi is ready to be a major leaguer right at the beginning of the season. And so, and you also have Chad Wallach who came up and you know he caught the no hitter last year, and you know he's not That's on the forty right. man, but uh, he's you know he's got major league experience, and if you know he might be someone that could that could start the season on the roster as well. I want to ask about one of the outfielders that isn't currently projected to be on the opening day roster. Where do things stand with Joe Adele? Yeah, it's really confusing. And I think Joe Adele probably is confused. I mean, I think that um, it's, you know, listen, he has not earned a, a major league role no. in any way, shape or form. So it's not like the Angels are doing him a disservice in that regard. Is is he going to make the roster? There's not really an avenue for it. I mean, Perry has said that the four outfield spots are solidified. And so the only way that I think Joe Adele gets on the roster to start the season is if he has an absolutely ridiculous spring training or if someone gets hurt. You know, or, you know, maybe it would take both. Uh, it's it's because there's also Mickey Moniak who'll be competing for a job and he might be more of an advanced and ready to play Major League Baseball than Joe Adele. So there's, you know, it's tough. I mean, Joe probably was brought up too early in 2020. He was brought up and down several times last year, which I do not think helped him. You know, he regressed offensively significantly. I mean, 
he was an awful at bat to watch last year. He struck out nearly forty percent of the time that he came up to the, came up to the plate. So it was a uh, which you know I think if he had qualified, that would have been by far the leader. And that's you know that was when they also had Brandon Marsh in the lineup. You know, striking out thirty six percent of the time. It was it was just a terrible season for the Angels, and they struck out so many times. And Joe Adele, I think, represented that in a way that was you know. It felt like almost like an automatic strikeout at times. He struck out, I think, at one point like nine straight times. Uh, so it's just he needs to uh, he needs to harness the power. He's got a ridiculous amount of power and potential. He can be, you know, a, a great defensive player if he if he just proves some of these instincts a little bit. I think he works on that quite a bit. Is it out of he's twenty? I think twenty three or twenty four. Bats are twenty four, so he's still super young. Uh, I don't think the Angels are going to trade him. I don't think they want to give up on him, but they need to see more. And I think that that they think there's something in there it's just uh, is this the right place for him it's it's really tough to say maybe a fresh start somewhere else would do him a lot of good and in a lower pressure environment i mean the fans you know it's just i think it's love hate with him i mean they want to see him do well but it's it's frustrating when they you know when they don't yeah in a recent article you wrote about zach netto the angels other top prospect beyond ohapi who was uh, their first round pick last year you you likened that tandem of uh, Ohapi and Neto to Marsh and Adele, which uh, I guess Angels fans are hoping that it turns out a bit better. Of course, Marsh yeah. brought back Ohapi, but I did want to ask about Neto just because we talked about the lack of a prototypical shortstop and about Manassian's tendency to be aggressive when it comes to prospect promotions. It would be very aggressive to slot Neto in at shortstop at some point this season, but is it out of the question that that could happen? I don't think it is. I mean, you know, I saw, I think Phil Nevin was even or somebody was mentioning uh some on some radio shows listening to i would wish i could cite it better i mean that i don't i i really think that they think very highly of him and that he's you know he he you know he came in you know i think a lot of college players and, and perry's very aggressive i mean you mentioned Ohapi being called up at the end of last season and and you know uh, zach nato was uh pretty much shipped double a after seven games in pro baseball uh and high a i mean and this is what they do they put a lot of guys directly in double a and i think that's a reflection of a poor farm system in a lot of ways. <laughs> they need to fill some spots. And it's just a reflection of Perry not necessarily wanting to wait around. And that's just kind of, I think, it, you know, I don't think he has, I don't think he can afford to wait around in some respects. So listen, if, if Zach Nato is hitting really well in double A or triple A or wherever he kind of starts out and the Angels need someone at shortstop, I would not be shocked if he gets an opportunity fairly quickly. I mean, there's, you know, they, they're not, I don't think they're messing around this year. I mean, they want to win. If they think that somebody could give them a shot, I, I don't think they're going to sit around and, and ponder the existential question of if it's going to help or hurt the prospect. I mean, I really think that they, they need to win this year to keep Otani and they need to just, they need to change their fortune. I mean, there's, I, I think there's going to be a lot of accountability within the organization after this year, if it's another season like they had last year. So whatever, whatever they can do to help them win, if they think that's NATO, and I, you know, he's, he came in pretty polished. I mean, he's a polished defensive player. You know, he was hitting, I think his OPS was near, like was above a 850 or something like that in double A last year. So he's, you know, he's really good. And, and if he's going to do that at that level, they're going to give him a shot. So I feel like I have said this in off seasons past, but I really mean it this year. <laughs> I like this angels rotation. Yeah. Question mark. I'm gonna let Ben ask about Otani the pitcher because you know that's his deal. But I I'm curious about something in particular with Tyler Anderson, who they brought in as a free agent. What is your sense of their assessment process of Anderson? Because the question that has sort of the sort of loomed over his free agency is 
can you transplant someone who benefited seemingly a lot from Dodgers player dev and get the same kinds of results in another organization with other folks? So how do you, what is your sense of how they went about deciding what is, what is the real Tyler Anderson? Well, I definitely, I don't think they would have, they, they gave up a lot for him. I mean, I know it was three years, thir- uh, $39 million, but they also, I mean, he was a qualifying offer attached to him, so they gave up a se- another second-round draft pick, as they did last year for Noah Syndergaard, which did not play well, and, you know, obviously some international money. So they, they give up quite a bit, and, and I don't think that's a, you know necessarily a smart uh, way to go about it, but they, they clearly think that Tyler Anderson's got, has figured something out. I mean, his change-up was the pitch that, you know, was got associated with his uh, resurgence last year. And I'm, I'm sure they believe that, you know, that that will translate over. But, you know, the Angels have been burned on that type of perspective in the past. I mean, players have come to Anaheim and gotten worse. Uh, it's not, you know, I mean, sometimes they come here and get better. Yeah. But it, and that's, it's, I, I would be, maybe I should do kind of like do a study on what the, <laughs> who gets worse, who gets better. And if it's a lot, if there's one in one direction, but, you know, it's, they, they, they clearly think that he's, you know, going to be the pitcher that he was last year or something close to it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see. I, I, I'm, I am fascinated by it because, like you said, I mean, he, it's one good season. I mean, he's generally been a very average to, in a lot of ways, below average major league starting pitcher. But, um, you know, it's not like they're paying him, uh, you know, a ridiculous amount of money. So it's, it's probably a smart investment, especially for the way he pitched last year. Well, and having a guy who can throw the innings that he can, even if they end up being kind of average, would be welcome for for them. Right. But yeah, yeah. I, I assume they're hoping for a lot more there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was a, a strong rotation last year. It, it, it could was, be just yeah. as strong this year. And obviously that starts with the ace, Shohei Otani, who on an inning printing basis has a strong case as, as the best pitcher in baseball last year, best starter. So he makes me greedy just because he has already fulfilled most people's wildest dreams, but my dreams are wilder than most. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, I like to to dream about how he could yeah. potentially be even better. And he seems to do that too. He never seems to be content with what he's accomplished, even though it took an extraordinary season by Aaron Judge to stop him from winning a, a deserved second consecutive MVP award. So you look at his offense from 2021, which, you know, took a, a slight step back, nothing dramatic last year. And then you look at how he's improved as a pitcher and how he was dealing down the stretch last year after he incorporated new pitches seemingly just on the fly just because he decided that he wanted to do that and instantly could. And you start to think just what could it be like? What heights could he reach? If he pitches like that with the kind of innings that he gave them last year and then combines that with the best that we've seen from him offensively, it's unrealistic to expect that sort of thing and yet with him it feels like it isn't so i guess two questions maybe is he going to stay on the same schedule do you think because it's unbelievable that he managed to stay healthy and productive playing as much as he did last year racking up that many innings and plate appearances but seemed to suffer no ill effects it was floated at times that maybe they could move to sort of a standard five pitcher rotation they don't necessarily need to because they have the depth with Anderson and Sandoval and Suarez and Detmers, et cetera. But is that even a consideration? Was that sort of his ceiling in terms of playing time, do you think, last year? And do you think we've seen him his ceiling yet in terms of uh, performance on a rate basis? 
Uh, I actually think he's going to be pitching more this year. I mean, I, they, they're going to stick with the six-man rotation. I mean, they don't have a sixth starter right now, but I, I do think that they will have generally six starters. But I, I do think, I mean, like what you saw last year and, and the year before was that if his starts, like if there was like a day off that week, like he would sometimes go a full week with, and a lot of pitchers on the Angels rotation would go like a full week without pitching. I think they're going to try to avoid that as much as possible. Like they will skip players or push players back in order to get him pitching once every six days. So if he pitches on a Tuesday, he'll probably pitch the next Monday, you know, whatever, you know, however that kind of shakes out. And so that'll probably lead to him getting a couple more starts here or there. Maybe, you know, he might, I don't know if he's going to hit 200 innings. He'd probably need to have a lot of really great starts, which he probably will, but he, you know, it'd be tough to get 200 innings. But, you know, I think his goal, if I had to guess, would probably be upward of 180 when he was at 166 last year. So it's, you know, he's probably going to pitch more because he hit his ceiling. I mean, I don't think so. I mean, I think he's a Cy Young caliber pitcher. I really do. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I mean, one of my favorite days of the season last year is when he started throwing that, like, he, I forgot which game it was where he faced some pitcher who threw like a two seamer at 101 miles an hour. <laughs> right. There's like this, there's like this little clip of him, like nodding at him, like, okay, yes. like, I, I see you. <laughs> and then the next game that he pitches, he does the same <laughs> yeah. thing. And it's I like, want one of those. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, it's, and I just, we asked him after the game, like, well, where did that come from? And he's like, I just worked on the bullpen. And like, oh, it's ready. <laughs> like, so what is, what is going to he work on the bullpen? What is he doing in the bullpen right now that we're going to see? You know, that's the question with him. I mean, he's, he seems like he's getting more strong. Like, you know, he's just, I mean, to be able to throw, he throws the two seamer pretty much you know, as fast as he throws his four-seamer to some, or he can at least. I don't think it may be as consistently, but, you know, he's a, he's a marvel. I mean, uh, I don't know what he's going to do differently. I mean, he's, you know, he's not, I'm sure he'll adapt in some ways. And, you know, the thing with him is, is he can, he can find the pitch that works for him on any given day. Like for the, there were several starts last year, he would throw his slider, like, you know, 60, 70% of the time, because it just was working. I mean, that's first start in Houston. He threw six perfect innings to start the game. And it was like all sliders. And then sometimes he just won't do it at all. The splitter, he just went away from it, you know, even though he was, that was like a pitch he hadn't even never given up a home run on. And then he threw, gave up one home run and didn't throw it. I mean, he just can, he can decide what he needs to throw to get him through a game. And usually it's good enough. I mean, he could, he has so many different options. He basically throws like six, seven pitches. And so that's just, you know, that's what makes him so good. And, and then there's velocity behind it and, you know, there's stamina behind it and he could go deep in games and still come out and hit. And it's, yeah, I mean, uh, I thought he was the MVP last year. Uh, I didn't even think it was that close, but it's, you know, I was one of, I was two of uh, 30 voters that thought that. So it's, I wouldn't be surprised if he has a more successful campaign this year, assuming he's, you know, healthy and, and doing what he typically does. I want to ask about a group of guys who actually aren't in the majors and some of whom we might not see for a while. How is the all pitcher draft class doing? Because <laughs> our listeners might recall that in 2021, the Angels, they only took pitchers. They just took pitchers up and down, not a single position player amongst them. How is that group performing? And what are your expectations for when we might see some of those guys? I know that Silseth, I think, has debuted, but what what is the current state of that group? Chase oh. Silseth. So Chase. many S's. It's just so sibilant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is a lot of... That's a name. Yeah, yeah say it 20 times in a row. Um, <laughs> can't. He's a... Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that was an aggressive, that was a very aggressive call up. I mean, he was the first player that was drafted in 2021 to even make the major leagues. And, and you have to consider the fact that he was, a, you know, a 11th round pick. I mean, the, the way the Angels kind of maneuver their drafts the last couple of years under Perry, I mean, they've underslot early on and then pick and choose their spots later in the draft where maybe they thought some guys, some guys who maybe thought they were getting bypassed or, 
you know, weren't maybe going to sign, they, they will draft them and then pay way over. Uh, and they've done that a couple of times. And I think Chase Silseth was an example of that. And he's made the major leagues. But, you know, it hasn't been, a, I mean, to be quite honest with you, I mean, I still, I don't think it was, everything's gone perfectly from that draft. I mean, uh, Sam Bachman had a very difficult season last year and he was the number one overall or not. It was their number one pick. And, um, you know, I think uh, 10th overall, and it wasn't, you know, he, he, he had two major back uh, injuries that kept him out for quite a while. And, you know, reportedly he's, he's got his velocity back when he did come back last year, his velocity was way down and that was concerning. Uh, he supposedly got it back, you know, pitched in the fall has done some good stuff over the off season. So we'll see with him. I mean, you know, the the question is, can he start at the major league level? Or is he going to be a reliever? And, you know, is he get healthy enough? I mean, there's, it's just, I think the way that his pro start has kind of gone you know, you pay a lot of money for someone that you now have a lot of questions about. I think Kai Bush had a good year, but again, I mean, similar situation where he wasn't, you know, I think able to go full go all the time. I mean, you look at his just box scores, there was a lot of short outings, missed a lot of skip starts. You know, it's tough to tell if he was, if he's kind of having the, the, you know, the overall performance that maybe they would have thought he could have as an early second rounder. I mean, they, the angels were talking about how they thought he could have been a first rounder. They were surprised he fell to them. So, you know, so the, the, there's, there's some players that are, that are doing well. I mean, you know, they, they've had a couple uh, relievers uh, like Luke Murphy, 14th rounder, Eric Torres, who are, who are doing well, you know, that maybe could, you could see in the major leagues at some point fairly soon. But as a, as a whole, I mean, I, I don't think it's been a great, you know, start for that class. And, and we'll see what happens with Silseth. I mean, he's, you know, right now, probably the best chance of, of, playing in the major leagues and playing there consistently. Uh, he, he was really good at, at his debut and he was really good in like the first three innings of every game he pitched. And then he would just completely fall apart in the fourth, just could not, you know, see a lineup the second time through. And maybe he got a little fatigued or whatever it might've been. But uh, if he, if he kind of works through that, I mean, he could be a very good major league starter. So we'll see. I mean, there's a lot of potential still. I don't think you could write off the players that we, you know, we saw from that draft, but it, it hasn't gone exactly according to plan, at least not as of yet. Yeah, they could use some help with some of those guys coming along, even as bullpen depth, because unlike the rotation, the bullpen was not a strength last season. It was uh, one of the worst ones, at least going by Fangraph's war, and there was the somewhat surprising Rysel Iglesias trade. So they've brought in Carlos Estevez this winter. There are a couple other moves. Is there any reason to think that this will be a stronger unit than last season's was? Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe it's like you said, it wasn't a very strong. I mean, listen, I go back and I look at this Rice Iglesias trade and I, I think, what, what were they doing? I mean, that was a bad trade. You know, maybe if they needed really needed to dump the salary, but I don't know if that was done with the sale in mind or what, because Rice Iglesias was electric for the for the Braves. And, you know, the Angels got back Jesse Chavez, who pitched like for a week for them and then went back to the Braves. And then they also got Tucker Davidson, who was quite bad. Uh, you know, we'll see if he ends up. Staying quite bad, but he was not good. Uh, so there's, they basically got nothing in return, and they could really use him right now. You know, I don't know if they'd want to have his $16 million on the books, but, you know, they, they certainly could use him in the bullpen. So, yeah, Carlos Estevez, I mean, he's probably going to be their closer. You know, they don't have a lot of guys that throw fast. I think with Estevez, it'll be interesting because if you look at his numbers kind of beyond just the the overall numbers, I mean, the way he splits in the home at home and road, I mean, some of his best off-speed pitches did not, I mean, they no off he pitches typically play very well in the, in the altitude in Colorado so to, he's you know he's going to be in California where I think some of the some of what he can do will really be accentuated and you know obviously he throws the ball hard in the upper 90s so he'll probably get a chance to close be that odds on favorite but you know it, it'll be curious I'll be curious to see how they use uh, Jose Quijada and Jimmy Herget 
Jimmy Herger, my favorite player on that team. Just <laughs> awesome. Uh, <laughs> just a just a fun, funny, funky dude. But uh, yeah, their bullpen was not very good. I mean, I think a lot hinges on the reliability of Aaron Loop and Ryan Tapera. You know, they were healthy, but Aaron Loop was not did not have a good year last year. I mean, he'd tell you the same thing it was 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 it was rough. A uh, good first six weeks, like everybody else, and then it just fell off a cliff. Uh, and, you know, Ryan Tapera was was pretty good, but there were certain outings were, you know, quite bad as well. So it's you know he was he he was fine. I mean, it's is he worth the seven million? He's they're paying him, probably not. But you know, he's certainly there and certainly accountable and capable of doing pretty well. Uh, I think a lot hinges on those two guys having a good season. Uh, if if they're not healthy or they're not good. Uh, it's, you know, you saw it when they, when they struggled last year, the angels were, that was when the angels struggled. So it's, uh, is the bullpen going to be better? I think it could be, but it's, um, you know, I, I think if anything, it's probably their weakest group. So last year, the Eric K opioids case was hanging over the head of this franchise and dredging up sadness and dysfunction. And there's also the ongoing issue of the ballpark situation and the land deal, where does the ladder stand? What is the outlook for a new ballpark or a new development? Uh, I mean, I think it's gonna that's gonna take a long time to play out, if I had to guess. And, and you know, I don't know if I don't know if something if I had to guess if anything in the equation changed for Artie to stick around, it could have been that. You know, there was obviously a lot of controversy and drama, and you know, it was just uh, that kind of that timeline for when that stadium deal fell through. And, you know, it's it, it's way too complicated to explain the whole situation right now. You know, for it's just, it just involves the FBI and then maybe with somebody, <laughs> right. somebody will make a documentary about it because there's probably, you know, the Anaheim mayor had to resign. Like, there's so much to it. But I don't know if something that equation changed. I think, well, the Angels have this lease, you know, that they can, that it goes through 2029, but they can extend it until 2038. So, you know, there's there's time for the for this, for a new deal to kind of come together. I'd be curious to see if, you know, Artie has any interest in really renegotiating it. I mean, they need that deal. I mean, if you go to an Angels game, you'll see the you'll see the issue. I mean, it's just a, basically a stadium and tons of parking lots around. It's not like bars or a community. And I think that's what they wanted. That's why they bought that land was to kind of build around it or, you know, supposedly build around it and, you know, be able to make the upgrades and renovations necessary. So, you know, I don't think we're going to see any like significant stadium renovations or upgrades because I don't think they want to invest in it and they don't think they're going to, they can, they own the land or, you know, are going to be there for that long or going to, or there's a guarantee they're going to be there for that long. So it's, 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 it's very critical. I'm curious about their spring training situation. I just found out yesterday they've been, they're back at their minor league facility for the third straight year. I don't know why they did. They've had these quote unquote renovations planned for a long time. And I guess I don't know, don't know why that's not happened. So we'll, we'll see that, you know, how that plays out. But, you know, there's just always something with this team, uh, you know, and, and, you mentioned the Eric K situation. I mean, they're set to go to trial in October on the civil case, which involves the Angels being sued. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you know, if the Angels are in the playoffs, that is going to be the backdrop of it. So it's, you know, it's just the way this team is. It's 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 full of drama. They, they haven't always done things the right way. And as a result, I think, you know, you see you kind of see it play out in these in these controversies and these issues that, you know, just frustrate fans and rightfully so. All right, so our sort of standard last question for these previews is how should this team define success this season? What would qualify as a successful season? You can judge that by any criteria on the fields, off the fields. When we look back at this in November, how will we know whether the Angels had a, a good year or a bad year? They need to make the I mean, it's very simple. I just think they need to make the playoffs. I mean, it's been eight years. That's tied for the longest round in baseball. If, you know, they built this team, you know, they, they were... There was there was a scenario you could have rewound four or five months ago and said, "Hey, the Angels should just 
start over. I mean, it didn't work this year. There's a reason why. Like, there's just, you, you need to build from the ground up. And they've not done that. And they've never done that. And they didn't do it. And so, you know, you took that risk and not, you know, saying, hey, we need to just put our resources in player development, you know, trade for prospects, like just just try and get this this thing restarted to some extent. They did not do that. And I understand why they didn't. But, you know, if you're not going to, then you have to follow through. You have to make the playoffs. And, you know, if they don't do that, I think it's a failure. And, um, you know, I think you maybe could say, hey, if they get to like 82 and 80 and they have a winning season, but they miss out, you know, I'm sure somebody will try to sell that as success. But I wouldn't look at it like that. I don't think anything short of just not that hard. You know, there's more playoff teams now. You just get that third wild card. You lose in two days. It's still a success. I mean, it's not a wild success, but hey, at least they were there. At least they did something. Uh, but anything short of that is a failure, in my opinion. If it does become clear at some point, let's say prior to the trade deadline, <laughs> that yeah. that will not be happening, that the Angels are out of it already and things have, have run off the rails, will we have a do they trade Shohei Otani scenario and discussion? Does that become a storyline or does the fact that he's just so well-liked and so watchable and such a big draw mean that he will stick around regardless? Well, if you re- you know if you read certain newspaper outlets in New York, you might think that he's like already in a, a free agent. I mean, I you know it's I I de- well this is going to be a storyline throughout the year from day one until there's some sort of contract that he signs somewhere. I don't know whether that's in Anaheim, whether that's in New York City, whether that's in Los Angeles, wherever it is, San Diego, San Francisco, Cincinnati. As long as he signs a contract, that's when I think people will stop speculating. But it's it until then, it's going to be you know something that I have to think about constantly. That I think Angels fans and I think baseball fans in general are going to be very interested in. And so yeah, I mean, Angels lose game one, it's like, well, are they going to trade him yet? I mean, it's that's the way it'll be. I mean, I, I genuinely think so. It's not just going to be. I mean, the conversation will pick up in, around July unless the Angels are, you know, in a playoff spot. I think even if they're like a game or two out, you know, you have, and, and the Angels really should be, they should consider trading him, if, even if they are a game or two or three out, because, you know, the last thing in the world you want is for him to walk and to, and to get nothing. You know, you could get so much from him. They could, I mean, there was a very good case to be made for the trading him last year and yeah. they didn't do it. So, you know, they, they just, you have to be able to, I mean, I, I always give the Rays credit. They're one of my favorite teams because they, you know, and I, I mean, you have, I think there's a balance between how much you care about the people and the players and, and how much you care about winning. And, you know, they, the Rays are, they're not always attached to players because I don't think they're, they can afford to be right. They, they can't say they can't afford to re-sign guys typically. And so, you know, sometimes they make tougher decisions and I think it's really helped them. That's one of the reasons why it's helped them. And so, you know, the Angels have to be good about making a tough decision. I mean, everybody likes Otani and he's a great person to be around. And, you know, I would, it would be bad for business for me if they trade him. But, you know, <laughs> I, I do think that you have to consider, you know, what's the tough choice, but what's the right choice. And, and, you know, if they're losing and they're not in the best position to make the playoffs, I mean, you have to get something in return. You have to build, you have to consider your future. Yeah, there's a case to be made. My my only counter to that, I guess, is that he's just such a singular, historic, yeah. riveting talent that I think you can also make an equally strong case that even yep. if you don't get quite as much back as you might otherwise, even if you have to settle for draft pick compensation, just every day getting to watch that guy in your team's uniform is precious. <laughs> right? It is, so. it is. I mean, but the Angels, they got to, they ha- I, I agree with that. I mean, I think that's the existential question with him. I mean, it's just, <laughs> but you also, I mean, this is, this is, they're not a, they're not, you know, this is not Shohei Otani. I mean, this is the, the LA, the Los Angeles Angels <laughs> of Anaheim, the Orange County or whatever. They, ha- I mean, they have to think about winning in their future. And that's how, at least that's the way I look at it. 
All right. Well, you can follow the Otani trade speculation all season long and everything else with Sam on Twitter at SamBlum3 and, of course, at The Athletic. Good luck. Hope you get to talk to Artie Moreno at some point. Thank you, Sam. I hope so, too. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Meg. It was good talking with you. All right. Let's take a quick break, and we'll be back in just a moment with our pal Alex Spear of the Boston Globe to discuss the Boston Red Sox. It's hardly a secret, your checkered past. It's hardly a question I will ever ask. Now you're free. Words so cumbersome. I knew your day would come. All right, we are back and we are joined, as we have often had the privilege to be for our Red Sox season previews, by Alex Spear of the Boston Globe, who is on the injured list right now as a writer, but not with an injury that affects him as a podcaster, fortunately. (laughs) So no one would have known. Welcome, Alex. I'm glad that I hide behind the anonymity of of my voice. (laughs) Yes. Well, maybe we'll discuss your injury a little later in its relation to Trevor's story. Perhaps that will come (laughs) up. But I wanted to start by asking you about a very fine book that you wrote about the Red Sox not three and a half years ago, which was called Homegrown. We talked to you about it on this very podcast. The Red Sox identity has changed significantly since that book was published, I would say. In fact, I was looking at the roster resource pages for all of the teams in preparation for this podcast, and I found that by roster resources definition of homegrown, the Red Sox have just 11 (laughs) players who are homegrown on their 40-man roster, which is the fourth fewest. They have the fourth least homegrown 40-man right now after the Mariners and the Padres, so Trader Jerry and (laughs) Trader AJ, right? And the A's, who are trading everyone and stripping that roster down to the studs. So it's the the Mariners have 10, the Padres have 9, the A's have 7, the Red Sox have 11. So how did we get here? Because I I think it has taken certainly some Red Sox fans by surprise. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's quite a thing. I, I actually recently did a you know had a talk in a local library about the home god generation of yeah. uh, of uh, you know the diaspora that the Red Sox have yeah, seen there's your of those uh, of those central figures in the 2018 championship where the only guy left is now Devers of that group. It has been a they they knew what they knew that they were going to be going in for a period of relatively bumpy change when they made the transition when they uh, when they fired Dave Dombrowski at uh, in late twenty in late twenty nineteen with the idea that uh, they didn't think they had done enough to kind of prepare themselves with their next wave of young uh, of young homegrown players and turned to Chaim Bloom. Um, the interesting thing is that in terms of the actual forty man. There's not that much, there's not that much in terms of homegrown guys who Chaim Bloom has added. He's added a lot of guys, you know, in the kind of Tampa Bay or for that matter, Dodgers type vein where, uh, there's change at every change is considered at every spot on the roster. Uh, the idea is that, you know, the, a 40 man roster is not a static thing. It's always fluid and, uh, you get just tons and tons and tons of waiver claims looking for ways of upgrading and you get, uh, you, you get some, you know, some, some big swings hoping that, uh, rule five draftees turn into people like Garrett Whitlock and a number of other 
you know, there are just a number of mechanisms, right? They've they have traded for young talent. Uh, so you have players on the 40 man who are acquired as minor leaguers, players who haven't necessarily uh, cemented themselves as terrific big leaguers. But uh, Josh Winkowski of the world, who is part of the team's depth equation, and he was acquired when he was in the minors, which was just a, a building mechanism that the Red Sox didn't use at all during the Dave Dombrowski era and almost never used during the Ben Charrington era, for that matter. Uh, the only time that they ever acquired minor leaguers under Charrington was when they were in a clear seller mode, both in 2012 and in, and in 2014, when they were when they were a very clear last place team. So you have in High and Bloom someone in charge of, uh, of baseball operations and upbuilding the roster who approaches it with a number of different mechanisms, who approaches roster building with a number of different mechanisms in mind. You haven't had time for the last couple of draft classes to reach the 40-man roster. They're, they're promising Red Sox prospects who are in the lower levels of the minors, but uh, the kind of high-end talents are, are uh, about a year or two away from uh, from joining the 40-man roster. So, uh, so yeah, what you have is a very different group, an incredible amount of turnover. You have uh, a number of, of stars who have either been uh, let go in free agency or traded away in the case of uh, in the case of Mookie Betts and Andrew Benintendi. Free agent departures, obviously, Xander Bogarts was a big one this offseason. And the entire identity of the roster and the franchise has transformed pretty drastically as a result. I want to ask about some of those departures and also some of the connective tissue that still remains, and maybe we can kind of contrast these with one another. What is your sense of how close the Red Sox ever were to retaining Bogarts? And then maybe we can talk about the Devers extension on the back of that. I think that there was some mild optimism at uh, at a couple of intervals this offseason, but there was nothing that was substantively close where it was like, oh, yeah, he's going to re-sign. Uh, I think that the Red Sox always thought of themselves as being engaged until maybe about twenty four, the last 24 hours before he signed with the Padres when they realized, oh, uh, it looks like the number of years is uh, the number of years and the ultimate guarantee size of the guarantee is moving well beyond anything that we'll compete with. I'm not sure whether or not the Red Sox were. I, I, I thought that the Red Sox were perhaps overly optimistic about what they thought their offer to Bogarts was and uh, how close it might be to retaining him. I'd reported at the time of the signing that uh, that they got to about six to six years and about 160 to 162 million, right around uh, 27 million dollars a year, with some wiggle room to go north of that. But I don't think that they ever thought that they would uh, that the bidding would get to 200 million dollars, or at least that they would be involved up to that point. And I always thought that the bidding was going to go at least once. Once you saw some of the early deals in free agency, yeah. and certainly once you saw the Trey Turner deal going down early in the uh, early in the winter meetings, it was like, oh yeah, <laughs> well if there's <laughs> uh, if there's an offer that doesn't start with the two, then it's awfully hard to imagine that it's going to get done with Bogarts. And I I don't think I or anyone else anticipated two eighty as being the uh, the get it done figure, but yeah, yeah, certainly the Red Sox didn't. Right. Well, and then I guess kind of related to that, I'm curious when it comes to Devers, who I'm sure, you know, Boston fans breathed a huge sigh of relief when his 11-year, $331 million contract got done. How in parallel were those conversations? And then did the departure of Bogarts really dramatically increase the urgency for the Red Sox front office? How did that stuff kind of line up with each other? 
So in terms of parallel, it is it is interesting, like at the beginning of the offseason, members of the Red Sox front office and ownership team met in person in a suite with both Bogarts and Devers together uh, in order to say, we would like both of you guys to stay around as our long term <laughs> franchise pillars. So uh, so the point of origin uh, is fairly similar in terms of where talks went. Um, and they did make early off. They were they they didn't waste too much time in terms of putting offers in front of both of them early in the offseason. But obviously, the dynamic is way different when you're talking about Bogarts having an opportunity to engage the rest of the market. And for Devers, uh, he is talking to the Red Sox and no one else but watching the market explode. So the Red Sox, I, I think that the Red Sox always thought that, you know, if you are, if there's one or the other, I think that they always viewed Devers as being the one based on age and projected production over the life of whatever super crazy money for the rest of us, for ordinary people, right? Like it's sane within the context of the major league baseball landscape, I guess. It's just sure. what the market is. But anyway, I, th- I think that they always saw Devers as being the guy who they were, who they'd like to retain for a decade and Bogarts as being the guy who they'd like to retain uh, for another six years. And, you know, I, I do wonder whether or not had push come to shove, had they been able to close out the deal with like a seventh year, whether or not they might have gone that direction, right? And kind of kind of passed the magical, quote unquote, Marcus Semyon threshold of seven years and 175, but never really got to a point where that would have been a consideration for them. So they engaged both of them. The uh, They were far apart uh, from Devers. I think that basically their original, the, the first offer they made during the offseason, uh, I think was probably about well, was probably about a hundred million dollars less than where they ended up reaching an agreement. So, but Devers had always been clear that that the only way to get a deal done was with three hundred million dollars or more. Um, thinking that that was for a player with his performance track and in his age category, that's kind of how a deal gets done. So, obviously, there was more ongoing <laughs> engagement with Devers, given that uh, there wasn't a a sudden and dramatic terminus to it that was uh, located somewhere in San Diego. But with Devers, uh, yeah, there were, I, I there had always been, I think, a sense of determination and urgency. A kind of, you know, early in the off season, you would hear Red Sox officials being like. Yeah, I think there's a pretty decent chance we're going to be backing up a truck for Devers, and they certainly did. So to what extent did the Devers deal mollify fans? Because Red Sox brass has been very visibly booed. Can you be visibly booed? Audibly booed, at least, both before and after the Devers deal. Whether you heard it on Nesson or not, it, it did happen. And those were not boo urns. They were not saying <laughs> bloom either. Those were definitely boos. Were the Red Sox leaders taken aback? Had they realized the, the depth of the ire that they had incurred? heard among Red Sox fans and how much did the Devers deal kind of blunt the edge of that anger? I mean, they've I've I've just been angered at the missed opportunity. Hal Heim Bloom never thought to uh <laughs> after after that session say, I was saying Bloom. Yes, exactly. uh, yeah, that would this is this is uh I think maybe the biggest tragedy of the offseason. Um and uh in terms of visible visible booing, like this has become like staple in our uh in our national discourse for uh for state of the union undertakings, right? Yeah, so right. um I think that there had been an expectation. First of all, your question, how much did the Devers deal mollify them? Well, the Devers deal was announced or was uh, the reporting on it moved the needle for a couple of days. And then almost immediately you have the news of 
uh, Trevor's story having uh, requiring UCL brace surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, oh yeah, the uh, this big move that you made is you know as the centerpiece of your organization building for the next de- for the next decade. Well, the second the second biggest deal that you've done has just gone bad on you for another at least half a season. So the I, I think that like. I think that people are very happy to know that Devers is going to be around for a long time. But in terms of the general sense of agitation related to team building, I, I think that it was uh, it, there wasn't that much of a halo that was uh, that was afforded by it in terms of a public relations thing. Not that the deal was done for public relations p- purposes, but yeah, it wasn't like, uh, oh, well, they signed Devers. So everything else is rosy. <laughs> Obviously not, because that right. winter weekend event uh, was shortly thereafter. I do think that there had been. Uh, an expectation that that setting could be one in which uh, in which there would be audible and visible ire expressed <laughs> and uh, no fingers. Uh, yeah, no fingers <laughs> waved that I that I observed. But uh, I, there was some expectation of that. I do think that the extent of it, the intensity of it probably surpassed what was expected. But ultimately, there had to be kind of a like, you know, well, like they they got it. You know, Bloom at least. It was clear that he had been prepared for the idea that there was going to be anger and agitation because, you know, he was he was ready to kind of offer mindful that it wasn't going to satisfy the fans, satisfy the fans who were there. He was at least there ready to offer what he saw as his team building vision or at least his his rationale for why moves had been happening over a longer period of time dating back to the Mookie trade. Um, But I, I think that, you know, it's a it is an organization that is certainly with its own fan base in prove it mode, right? Mm-hmm. Like there are two last place finishes under Bloom that are sandwiched around kind of one very surprising and for people in, throughout New England, very fun, unexpected run to the ALCS. But I, I think that the overall, uh, you know, obviously the, the number of player of centerpiece players who have been taken away has, uh, has been jarring for. For a lot of fans who are used to who want to be able to invest in players want to know their team and instead have as you pointed out a roster comprised of 29 guys who are in from other organizations and most of them just in the course of the last couple of years and it's becoming more difficult at a at a fan level to relate to know and relate to some of the players so i think that um winning is uh uh, I guess I'm not going to I'm not going to uh, to borrow from Evan Drellick by saying winning fixes everything, <laughs> nor would I borrow from you, Ben, and saying you know the only rule is you have to win. But um, <laughs> certainly, I, I think that the the Red Sox are in a position where their fans are skeptical and will remain so until they start being competitive again for playoff berths. Yeah, and speaking of the State of the Union, I mean, part of the purpose of that from the president's perspective is to present their agenda and communicate their priorities, whether anyone's listening or not is a different matter. But how much of the Red Sox, uh, I guess the anger that they have generated, uh, most of it comes down to what they have done or not done, but has there also been a failure in explaining the vision and the motivations? Because this is something that you've written about before with Bloom's approach to the trade deadline where he hasn't wanted to be pinned down into buyer or seller and and hasn't wanted to define things in in such a a binary way. And there's something sort of admirable about that, I guess, in being uh, 
people and saying, why can't we be both? But I think it does kind of confuse people at times, maybe even internally with the Red Sox, as you have reported. And and Meg and I, as we have dissected their various moves, I, I think we've had trouble kind of pinning down exactly how the Red Sox see themselves or how we see them. So is there a, a failure of sort of presenting a, a plan and saying this is who we are and this is why we're doing these things and this is where it's going to get us? In terms of a failure of presenting a plan, I think that there has been kind of a consistency of a vision related to this holy grail of sustainability. Now that's such a that's such an amorphous term and such a malleable term that um, that, that isn't exactly uh, that isn't exactly like the the sign that you know you aren't having people showing up on opening day holding up signs and saying welcome sustainability, um, <laughs> particularly since they haven't gotten to it yet. Uh, so I do think that the messaging has. Uh, has been at times confusing for a lot of people, particularly because um, sometimes because the execution of it hasn't been, you know, if the goal is that you are only you are going to try to improve the present in a way that isn't compromising this uh, this idea of long term uh, of long term success, of long term competitiveness, then, you know, the execution has been somewhat flawed, right, where uh, decisions have been made to do things like you know, at the trade deadline, having the ability to unload a J.D. Martinez contract uh, and get under the luxury tax threshold and maybe get like a lower level prospect or two back. Right. Like no one who is going to help the major league roster in that moment. But J.D. Martinez wasn't helping the, the, uh, the major league roster that much in that moment either because he was injured and he was struggling and he was in a state of, of performance decline. And the unwillingness to pull the trigger on that and thus to leave the Red Sox in a position where the departures of Nate Aldi and Xander Bogarts are going to leave them with two picks between the fourth and fifth rounds of the draft rather than between the second and third rounds of the draft. Like, yes, I, I think that, you know, I think that there's a, a struggle to see. I, I do think that there, I do think that part of the reason why, why there's as much skepticism in the fan base as there is, is because it, it is a little bit more difficult to follow the playbook. Like, you know, the, the moves are, the, the moves are sometimes one step forward and two, you know, one step towards the present and two towards the future. And sometimes one step away from the present and two towards the future. It's the, the sequences are, uh, are sometimes confusing, but the Red Sox have tried to articulate a message that, you know, that competitive, that competing in the present is always a priority, that they are always, I mean, they've been consistent in their spending, which is, uh, which has been, at least around the luxury tax threshold, above it in one of in one year of Bloom's tender uh, tenure, rather, this looks like it's going to be the third year where they're just a little bit below it. Um, that could change, obviously, over the course of the season, depending on on what moves they do or do not make. But they've gone from being a top one or a top the top spender in the last years of Dave Dombrowski uh, to being kind of a uh, a top five to ten spender in the last few years under Bloom, and that that does represent a something of a step back. It's not a massive step back. It's not a rebuild. It is a slight step back. Um, but I think any step back is uh, difficult for any fan base to accept. And if it's not accompanied by winning, like the Dodgers get will get more latitude when they decide to reset their luxury tax uh, penalties every three years or so. Because, you know, because they win 100 plus games every year. Right. If you're bouncing between being a, you know, being a team that's competing for the playoffs one year and being like a 450 team that's like way that doesn't play a meaningful game in, in September, the other two, then that's a little bit harder to stomach. Well, let's 
Let's try to make sense of the playbook a little bit here. And I think the place that I'd like to start is actually in the rotation because, Alex, I don't know what to make of this rotation or <laughs> or, or maybe more precisely, I don't know what we ought to realistically expect. This seems like a group that has a tremendous amount of volatility baked into it, some of which might redound to the Red Sox benefit, but some of which might make their fans understandably quite nervous. You, you mentioned that they are now without Nathan Eovaldi. He's a ranger. They've brought in Corey Kluber, who had a surprisingly strong season with the Rays last year. Chris Sale will be returning. So what are what are your expectations of this group? And maybe we can start at the top with Sale. I have no idea. Uh, there, aren't, <laughs> there aren't too many guys who who pitch about 50 innings over the course of three years as, yeah. uh, as data points when coming back in their mid-30s to figure out what does that look like. Yeah. Um, so I think that it's uh, <laughs> the the five innings that Sale offered as a glimpse last year. In those five innings, he had better stuff than he had when coming back from Tommy John surgery in 2021. What that means for 2023, I'm not sure. Um, he was, uh, he was throwing hard last year and, you know, the shape of his pitches was good. He, I, I could go into some of the details of some of his like minor league rehab starts, but, yeah. uh, I just, you know, I, I think it's so difficult to know exactly, um, how well you're going to be able to sustain your stuff outing after outing. Actually, uh, it was funny. Kluber was in town before he signed with the Red Sox. Well, he lives in the area, right. uh, but he was at a, uh, he was at a charity event for Pedro where I saw him early in the off season and talked to him a little bit as one of the guys who's in a kind of similar bracket, uh, someone who pitched very, very little over the course of three years. And, um, what is it like coming back from that long an absence and figuring out what you have at your disposal and how you can compete? And he kind of, offered the general sense of like of pitcher of veteran pitch savvy and pitcher optimism right where he's like well the opportunity to compete in the course of games rather than like rather than just using like lab data essentially to figure out what kind of stuff you have like you are you have the experience to be able to know how to how to make that play in a in a good way but the reality is that Corey Kluber represents a huge success story in pitchers Corey Kluber 2022 version represents a huge success story in terms of pitchers coming back from missing most of three years, but he came back as a drastically different pitcher than he'd been, right? Like where uh, there was far less dominance, far less swing and miss stuff. He was very competitive. He offered the Rays consistent innings in 2022, uh, but was more of a back end of the rotation guy than a front end of the rotation guy. And so is is that what Chris Sale is? Or based on the fact that in, the, in his one full start that he made in Tampa Bay, Last year when he was like throwing, when he was topping out at 96, 97 with a pretty nasty slider, like is, uh, is there a chance of Chris Sale having undergone all of these non-arm injuries over the last couple of years coming back and being in being a top of the rotation force? I don't know. My guess, if I'm betting and oh God, I shouldn't even mention betting in the course of baseball because like, <laughs> I don't know, like I find it like I, whatever, gross, whatever. You're, um, you're on the right podcast. <laughs> okay, cool. But yeah, like, so if I'm speculating about what the future might hold for Chris Sale, then I'm guessing that there's going to be periods of inconsistency. And I'm guessing that, you know, that there are going to be like kind of breathtaking outings where you're like, holy crap, that's like, you know, that's, that's a dynamic pitcher who's like, who's incredibly fun to watch at the peak of his abilities, because not many people combine the stuff with like how, you know, with how the body works and that sort of thing with some periods where like 
I, I would guess that there are going to be some command issues thrown in there and some, you know, and uh, and some inconsistencies and some periods where he doesn't have the feel for uh, for his stuff and gets hit hard. And the the great unknown is how how frequently will he be able to post again? I, I think that he's had this succession of weird injuries where you know, whether it was a stress fracture of the rib, which is viewed as being like not a chronic condition, but a kind of one-off, uh, having a pinky broken by a 110 mile an hour comebacker uh, from Giancarlo Stanton, or having, uh, or falling off of a bike and having his uh, his wrist uh, turn into a question mark, like literally looking like a question mark, uh, his right wrist, I should add, <laughs> rather than his pitching hand. But those aren't injuries that should, the injuries that he had in 2022 probably shouldn't affect the kind of pitcher he can be in 2023. But the fact that he's lost the consistency of being a major league starting pitcher, it's hard to come back from that and be and be yourself. We're talking about pitching, but I will take just a, a quick wrist-related detour because that is the injury of yours that <laughs> I alluded to earlier. You told us before we started recording that you were comparing broken wrists with Trevor Story, although Trevor Story now has other injuries to deal with. Presumably, you have not had an internal brace procedure performed on yourself, so I guess you can't speak to that from experience, but... Can you tell us what the outlook is for Story as a contributor in 2023, potentially? But beyond that, even, is there hope that his issues with arm strength were related to this and that those could be entirely cured by this surgery? Yeah, I talked to a couple of people who have been a central part of uh, of creating the brace procedure. And, you know, there's, there's a certain element of uh, their enthusiasm for the brace procedure is, you know, I, I would I would expect nothing less from people who uh, who invented the procedure than to say it's great and it can <laughs> fix a lot of stuff. Um, at the same time, they have a lot of they have more experience with it than a lot of people, and there's a reason why it's becoming a more popular procedure. Yeah. So Trevor Story, uh, who did suffer a broken wrist last year, by the way, when he was yes. uh, hit by a yeah. pitch on the hand, but his broken wrist was not nearly as gnarly as Sales or mine. Um, so <laughs> I, I guess I have that on him. Um, but yes, I, I think that there's there's hope that he can that he'll be able to wing it a little bit more uh, when, you know, his it wasn't it wasn't like there was like a gradual this wasn't like a balloon gradually like losing air with one of those little like, you know, like weird noises of balloons and parties like <laughs> blowing all over the place. You know, Trevor Story had good arm strength as of early 2021, and then he did not. And he moved, you know, from having perfectly fine arm strength for a shortstop, particularly one who throws on the run and thus shortens the length of his throws quite a bit, to being one who was way down there in terms of uh, in terms of shortstop arm strength. Fine as, you know, his arm played fine as a second baseman. But again, in terms of stat cast stuff, the arm strength looked uh looked like it was light again some of that goes into the fact that he's throwing on the run which in order to shorten throws which he's building in offsets like athletic offsets for that but the outlook is ultimately it would be following a standard course of uh, of rehab for a position player if trevor story were back around the all-star break able to and that means back like playing defensively as well as uh, as well as being able to hit he could theoretically you could bring him back as a dh earlier but um, I think that the Red Sox hope is to have his arm <laughs> working where he can throw the ball. And uh, and then in making that return, I think that there is a reasonable amount of hope on the side, on the part of members of the medical community who are familiar with the procedure that he would regain the uh, a good amount of the arm strength, if not all of it, that he lost. That's not a guarantee, but there's a, a pretty decent track record there. In terms of what kind of player he can be, he'll, he will be kind of like... He will be kind of scrambling Scooby-Doo style in order to uh, in order to 
to try to catch up with in order to try to like get onto a treadmill that's been moving uh, pretty quickly without him. But he's a dynamic player. He was uh, his numbers don't look spectacular from last year, but the Red Sox really liked the shape of their team when Trevor Story was playing. He was uh, a terrific defender at second base. I'll be curious to see whether or not uh, whether or not he can be that if he is, uh, if he does see time at shortstop next year or in the coming season, I guess. But he was, you know, he was their best base stealer. He had like legit big power, which they were missing throughout their lineup last year with J.D. Martinez and Xander Bogarts, but seeing their, uh, their power, uh, aside from Devers, like Story was the only guy with real offensive juice in their lineup. So if they're kind of around the fringes of contention, then they'll probably be pretty optimistic uh, around the All-Star break because... You know, adding that guy in is a significant development for them. In the interim, they have had to engage in a bit of a scramble to put together a, you know, a configuration that makes some amount of sense. So let me see if I have all of this right. So Hernandez is going to play shortstop in all likelihood. They acquired Mondesi from Kansas City. They'll slot him, assuming he is healthy and able to come back, and we should talk about that. At second base, they signed Adam Duvall to play center. They've got a lot of pieces moving around, some of which haven't played the position they're going to either a lot at the big league level or for very long. And so what are your expectations for how these guys are going to be able to actually you know, conduct themselves in the field? And then what is the backup plan if some piece of that goes wrong, either because of underperformance or health stuff, particularly with Modesty? Yeah, yeah, you better have some backup plans with health stuff, right? Like based yeah. on the uh, based on the pattern of the Red Sox uh, of the Red Sox recently. There's one other kind of primary member of that of that equation, uh, which is Christian Arroyo, who's oh, been yes. very solid contributor for the Red Sox when himself healthy over the course of the last couple of years. Um, he uh, he'll also be a factor at second base. So I think that the default configuration for opening day is uh, is what you outlined. Like mostly Duval in center with uh, Kike Hernandez at shortstop and uh, and Arroyo at second base, and then I think that you'll see you'll see ways of getting like Rob Ref Snyder is someone who might end up seeing uh, seeing some time in center as well, which he did last year right. uh, while Kike Hernandez. Like Rob Ref Snyder is uh, a, like by the way who became like essentially Paul Goldschmidt last year against <laughs> left-handed pitchers in a very strange fashion uh, and unexpected one. But yeah, so they will have. Uh, it's, it's not, it's certainly not a like, oh, th- here's your, uh, here's your identifiable, like center fielder who's been a lockdown guy at that position for several years. Instead, Adam Duvall moved to center field in his like mid thirties and amazingly was pretty good at it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which that's weird. Um, yep. but that's, that's great for him. But, um, I think that, uh, the, the, the kind of hub in the wheel is, you know, the hub is Kike Hernandez and his ability to move between all three of those areas. And he looked pretty good, honestly, uh, down the stretch last year at shortstop. Um, he played when, you know, Bogarts was banged up at times late last year and Kike would play shortstop and, uh, you know, he moves well at the position. He's a super smart baseball player. Like he can be, I think, fine at that position. Certainly the arm will play there, but they, I think they're open-minded as to whether or not they'd look better with Hernandez at short and, uh, Mondesi at second or flipping them in the other direction, you know, depending upon how it goes. Uh, in the same way that back in um, when Hernandez came to the Red Sox in 2021, they thought that if he were to play the outfield, that uh, that Hernandez would play a corner and Verdugo would be in the center. And instead, they realized pretty quickly, nope, Kike Hernandez is 
uh, is one of the better center fielders in baseball. So I think you'll see Kike Hernandez getting playing time at all three of the positions. And I'm a little bit, uh, well, I, I think that I would say that, you know, as long as Duval is healthy, mostly it'll be in the middle infield, but they're going to be flexible. And then in terms of fallback plans, like things could get, uh, they, they have a spectacular defensive player uh, at the, uh, who's going to be in AAA this year, Sedan Rafaela, who basically makes like a highlight reel play every day in the minor leagues, whether he's playing center field or shortstop. Um, I think that he's viewed as uh, a potential gold glove center fielder down the line, but not with, but he's still developing as a hitter to the point where like there's some juice in this, uh, in this little tiny frame. He's like five foot nine and in about like maybe a buck 60 and uh, looks like he, you know, and had for most of his life done little more than spraying the ball, but then overhauled his swing a little bit. And all of a sudden, lo and behold, here are home runs going from right center to uh, the left field foul pole. So he's a guy who can become a factor as the season, uh, as the season unfolds, whether in the middle infield or in center field, Mondesi is going to be I, I think that uh, they're they're hopeful that Mondesi would be available relatively early in the season, potentially even at the start of the season. And then down the road, you have uh, the potential for a story to return. But uh, I think that um, the best way to describe it is fluid. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's not like it's not like you sit here and you say this is the Red Sox lineup right. um, and configuration. I, I think that, you know, there's uh, there's going to be some shape shifting going on. Yeah. You know, Saris made a statistical case recently that the Red Sox might have the most volatile collection of position players just based on the range of outcomes in their projections. There I think so he also guys... made the point that they have the most volatile everything <laughs> there, yeah, yeah, like on right. their team, right? Like, because as exactly what you're saying with the, like what we were saying with Sale, like, yeah. it's not like there, it's not like, I mean, let's, let's fly through that one. Like Sale, Brian Bayo in his first full season in the big leagues, Garrett Whitlock is moving from the rotation to the bullpen. Uh, Corey Kluber, who is like, you know, what, 37 now. And like, you know, you're wondering whether or not he can back up uh, his 30 start season of a year ago after missing the previous three years. Like it's, there's, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's, this is a strange group. Yeah. And on the offensive side, right. Uh, all the, the positional uncertainty we've been talking yeah. about and Mondesi and Bobby Dahlbeck, who I guess has been displaced at this point by Tristan Casas or is on the short side of a platoon now. But maybe no one is a, a source of greater uncertainty than the Red Sox biggest offseason addition from outside the organization in, in terms of money spent, Masataka Yoshida, whose contract, I, I think, surprised people. And I'm intrigued by his talent and, and his profile because he's a type of player we don't see much of in MLB anymore, which is maybe a cause to be skeptical, but also a, a reason to be excited if his skills do translate, which, as you wrote recently, is is not certain. So someone like him, you know, high contact, high average, high on base. What is the confidence? Obviously, Boston's level of confidence seems to be quite high that he will be the same type of player making this transition. Yeah, I think that, you know, the Red Sox and I like I think that this is actually one of the maybe like this. This is this is maybe the most interesting signing of the Bloom tenure, right? Like this is a case where where they were willing to to kind of form their own uh, their own scouting and uh, analytical projections on Masataka Yoshida and the type of impact that he can make coming over. And they were willing to make a, a, to be a big market team and make an aggressive bid, like aggressively outbid the rest of the market or aggressively bid in order to ensure he didn't reach the open market, um, in order to lock him up. And 
uh, yeah, they like they've they've scouted him extensively over the course of the last few seasons. They had they had him kind of as a as a high priority uh, as a high priority player coming over, dating to 2019, the offseason of 2019, 2020. I think that they had identified that in the next few years there was going to be a there there might be a posting opportunity with him, and that when that happened, they thought that he had a chance to be a pretty special hitter, and that impression only grew over the course of the last year. Where in addition to being this kind of you know, batting champion and this guy posted who posting huge on base numbers. He also added um, some legit power to his game, right? Like he's power, how power translates from the NPB to the US is always, uh, is always somewhat complicated. But when you see things like him turning on a 95 mile an hour fastball at the top of the zone and blasting it 450 feet, that'll probably translate. So, uh, <laughs> so they're willing to make a bet on a guy uh, whose value is entirely wrapped up in his bat. Right. Like defensively, I think that there's not a single person who would describe him as an average defensive player in left field. Uh, you can mask some of that in Fenway Park. So uh, you're able to one of one of the greatest detriments to his value is going to be eroded a bit by virtue of where he's going to be playing in the relatively small amount of real estate that he has to cover there. But they're very optimistic. They're very bullish. But we've also as as you mentioned at the in the kind of introduction to this question, um, the history of players coming over from uh, from Japan to the U.S. is scattered, and we've seen players who have dramatically surpassed or who have lived up to expectations. I think that Seiya Suzuki really had a very good transition to MLB last year, and was you know I talked to uh, I recent for a recent article I talked to Jed Hoyer about him, and I talked to Pat Gillick uh, and Jim Colburn who had been. Uh, who had been involved with the Mariners and bringing Ichiro over to the States, um, you know, a couple of decades ago. And uh, I, I think that Suzuki had a had a pretty nice transition when you consider that it is a transition, and that there's so much going on as a player is uh, upending their life, uh, their life in order to adjust to a new culture and a new playing environment and, uh, and a new schedule and so many different things. I think that that was a very success. That was a relatively successful first year transition for Suzuki and for the other Suzuki Ichiro. You know, he's a good reminder that, um, that there are varied projections of what players might look like coming from Japan. There were people back in 2000, December 2000, uh, in the industry grumbling. Oh, I can't believe the Mariners, you know, the Mariners gave up a $13 million posting bid for Ichiro. Uh, you know, that's, uh, we don't have any idea how position players are going to perform when coming over from Japan. And, you know, that, uh, they, they blew past, they blew about 50% past any other bid. I, I think that they did not come to regret that. So, uh, so it is kind of awesomely interesting to see how, uh, a guy who has like such a contact heavy approach, um, and then with power is going to be translating to the big leagues. Theoretically, the offensive approach and defensive limitations should translate well at Fenway Park. But the weird thing to me is that, like we mentioned, the uncertainty of that, and yet all the projection systems seem to be coming to a same to a similar place on him, which is yep. like a you know a pretty optimistic outlook of him as one of the better offensive players in Major League Baseball, which is like I I don't think I expected that. Mm -hmm. So we pivoted away from pitching so that I could joke about your broken wrist. But one more <laughs> pitching question before we wrap up here about the bullpen, which was not a strength last year. The Red Sox were one of the few teams with a worse bullpen than the Angels, the last team we talked about. And they have made some changes, as one would hope, after a season <laughs> such as that. So there's some continuity here. And, and Ryan Brazier's still around, <laughs> the other last link to the 2018 team. But you have Kenley Jansen, you have Chris Martin, you have Joely Rodriguez, you have Richard Blyer. So 
what's the outlook here? Drastically different, uh, yes. certainly. <laughs> and um, I think, you know, wh where that takes the results, uh, they're certainly hopeful that it'll take it to a much different place. And, you know, when you do think about the failures of the and the disappointments of the 2022 Red Sox, they lost 11. They they uh, I think that they had um, 11 blown losses against American League East competition. And they uh, and actually maybe it was like, yeah, and 19 one run losses against the AL East. So so you can see how that put them in a pretty bad spot where they were losing a lot of close games against the AL East early. Then they weren't good late and they didn't have one run games anymore. But <laughs> obviously they're hopeful that, you know, that they're, they're creating structure, which they didn't have last year by having Jansen and then having everything kind of work up to Jansen and uh, um, a setup crew of. You know, of guys like uh, of guys like Martin, uh, John Schreiber, who was a who was a nice little find for them uh, last year, who became one of the better uh, and more successful relievers in the American League last year. And, you know, having some guys who are bad contact lefties like Blyer and Joely Rodriguez, um, they're hopeful that that represents an upgrade. I, I think that there's the, the thing that stands out is that they've gotten strike throwers, uh, which they did not have last year. Last year, they just walked everyone. They, you know, it was, it was, you know, they had Jake Diekman coming into, uh, coming into high leverage situations. And I, I mean, it was, I, I think it, it felt like he walked the leadoff batter that he faced like every time he entered the game, still <laughs> with good stuff, you know, and sometimes able to work around it. And sometimes he would have, you know, he would have like a six hopper that would score two runs because he had walked a couple of guys in front of it. So I, I think that they've, they've gotten to a bullpen, uh, that should at least be, uh, somewhat less self emulating. And that's at least on paper, uh, how they hope to approach things. So as a veteran of this preview series, you're probably bracing yourself for the oh, total prediction question. Wedding <laughs> in a panic. <laughs> well, I'm glad we got your authentic uh, dread reaction there because uh, I think people are missing that maybe because we have ditched the win total prediction component here. Now, if You're you've free. already put the work in and, and generated your projection and crunched the numbers, please feel free to share it. I don't want that work to go to waste. And you've done quite a good job navigating the minefield of predicting the Red Sox results because as you noted in your Baseball Prospectus annual essay, it's been the best of times and the worst of times. I mean, they've been on top of the world and, and a last place. That's a sure. very original <laughs> construct by me, by the way. I just wanted to point that out. <laughs> yeah, Right. So you have had some some notably accurate predictions, but we have shifted to a broader question now, which is basically what would qualify as a successful season? What should the Red Sox goals be this season on the field, off the field? When we look back at the end, how will we decide whether this worked out the way they wanted it to? I think that uh, there are two different prongs to measuring success. One <laughs> is whether or not they like they kind of have to get to a uh, at least a respectable low to mid eighties win total. Otherwise, it's just going to kind of look, I, I think it's going to be really easy for fan anger to, uh, to continue to amplify and suggest like these guys have no idea what they're doing, right? Like I, I'm not even sure if a fourth place finish in the division is going to be good. Like, you know, in, in an almost impossibly stacked division, if they don't crack the top three, I think it's going to be, they're going to have a, 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 a pretty difficult public relations battle on their hands. Um, yeah. But the other part of it for them is that they are looking at things through the, you know, through the lens of long-term sustainability. So I think that, you know, I think that what they are trying to do is identify key contributors to the next, 
to the next team that has a chance to be good for a long time. So they need to find the long-term complements to Devers. And so that means how does Whitlock perform in the rotation? How does Bayo perform in the rotation? How does Tristan Cassis transition to being an everyday first baseman in Major League Baseball? And then can they get someone who's going to open the year in AAA to join that wave? Can they then, then can they get one of the, one of the guys, one of the high ceiling players in the lower minors? I think Marcelo Meyer, who is their top prospect and uh, generally viewed as like one of the top 10 prospects, top 10 to 15 prospects in baseball. Can he continue to remain on that track where you can envision him contributing in 2024? I, I like, I think that there, there's, those are the two tracks by which you judge their season. Uh, they need a huge year from player development where it looks like the next core is coming. And then whether or not that's that's good enough for uh, for the Vox Populi, uh, I'm not <laughs> sure if it is not complemented by being a, a winning team that has at least a fringe contention chance. Yeah, I, I've seen some speculation by reputable people about the job security of Red Sox leadership. And I was wondering whether the fan anger might translate into ownership discontent or at least sacrificial lamb offering, right? I mean, is that a possibility? I guess you have uh, Alex Cora's past indiscretions about sign stealing <laughs> coming back to haunt him now, yeah. courtesy of our friend Evan. But you also have uh, Heim Bloom, who, you know, from afar, it doesn't seem like he's been there that long. Maybe for Red Sox fans, it, it has seemed like a long time already. But this is basically Bloom's roster at this point. I, certainly, he inherited the Chris Sale contract and, and a bunch of other players. But I read that roughly 90% of the current Red Sox payroll has been committed under this front office. So if things do go south in the first half, I mean, is that a topic of conversation, whether these people's jobs will be safe or is that premature? Uh, it is unavoidably a topic of conversation, if only because the Red Sox fired each of their last two GMs, right. yeah. each of whom had a World Series championship on their resumes in year four, <laughs> yes. mid-season. Yeah. So I, I think that there's there's no way around it if the Red Sox aren't performing well. And like I want to add with Ben Charrington in 2015, like he and Red Sox ownership had been kind of in lockstep throughout that season until all of a sudden they decided, oh, Dave Dombrowski's a free agent. We're going to fire him. So I, I think they had been, you know, philosophically very closely aligned uh, before they did make the decision that uh, this is an opportunity to get a franchise that isn't in the right place into the right place. Yeah, so I think that clearly the the precedent of uh, of the fourth year being a pivotal one uh, <laughs> is glaringly obvious, and uh, and for that reason, it's an unavoidable topic. No matter uh, no matter how much, no matter how closely aligned Bloom and the Red Sox ownership group are in terms of their philosophical outlooks. I guess I've already made it a topic just by bringing it up right now. So I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a guilty party here. Last thing just occurred to me, we're talking to someone who had a nickname bestowed on him by Dennis Eckersley, Stat Masterson himself. <laughs> so there's been a lot of turnover in the Red Sox broadcast booth and, and losses and departures of beloved broadcasters. Of course, the passing of Jerry Remy and now Eckersley's retirement. So what will that mean for the Red Sox fan experience? And Kevin Euclid, who is coming in in a more regular role, what sort of successor will he be? I think that there's there's no one who's like Eck. Uh, <laughs> the, you know, 
like it's it's a really cool and special thing for me that I got a nickname from him, right? Like what a <laughs> what a like what a great honor. But but like that's just a product of someone who has this incredibly active imagination in a unique way of communicating about what he's seeing and what he's around and and who's not kind of bounded as uh, as tightly by the strictures of the language as some of the rest of us, right? Like there's uh so I, I don't think that you can ever replicate someone who brings like that that kind of innovative creative spirit. But I think that the uh the general view of uh, of Euclid is that you know he's a really bright, really astute, and very funny, like super sardonic, you know, like kind of calmly funny individual who who sees the game in really precise ways. Like I love I loved doing. Uh, doing segments with you in part because like the perspectives are so broad. He has the player perspective. He also worked with the club, with the Cubs, you know, in player development and was conversant with their front office stuff. Uh, so he understands the game from a, from a variety of perspectives, but isn't afraid to push back on it. So I think that he's a really good, um, he's a really good voice to be able to navigate like baseball as it exists now in this, in its own shape-shifting form. And I sound like I'm describing Wednesday, but you know, <laughs> that's cool. Like Wednesday's a good show. Yeah. But uh, there's going to be, but there's going to be a rotating cast uh, of former players coming through the booth. Uh, Will Middlebrooks is going to be getting some time uh, in there as well, Tim Wakefield. So, um, you know, I, I do think that uh, the broadcast itself is, you know, is kind of in a, is going through periods of, of change. But I, I think that with, People who are familiar and uh, who see who see the game from a variety of ways that are interesting and impassioned. So I, I think that by and large, the question about the watchability of the Red Sox is going to be driven chiefly by <laughs> what the team is on the field. Um, yes. And I think that the, the people who they have who are going to be commenting on the games are really smart guys who are going to do a good job of figuring out how to uh, how to analyze that. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and to read you, and people can do the latter at the Boston Globe. They can also find Alex on Twitter at his name, Alex Spear. And if you want to reminisce about different and possibly better days, his homegrown <laughs> is still a great read. So thanks as always, Alex, and good luck with the healing process. Well, thank you. And uh, I will uh, I will look forward to uh, throwing out the first pitch on next year's Effectively Wild, <laughs> Effectively Wild series. So thanks so much for having me. All right, so we will wrap up, as always, with the Pass Blast. This is the Pass Blast from 1967 and also from David Lewis, who is an architectural historian and baseball researcher based in Boston. Here's what he has for us today. 1967, the AL experiments with, quote-unquote, designated hitter. Heading into spring training in 1967, Chicago White Sox manager Eddie Stanky, there's that man again, (laughs) we cannot shake Eddie Stanky, nor would we want to, proposed a slight change to baseball's rules regarding the pinch hitter. The suggested change would allow for a pinch hitter to be used twice in the same game. According to a March 10th, 1967 UPI story titled Big Baseball Experiment Slated, American League President Joe Cronin approved the experimental rule change, albeit with added guidelines. The story continued. In granting approval for the experiment, Cronin clearly specified that the player who will pinch hit must be designated before the game and he will not be allowed to pinch hit twice in the same inning. 
Further foreshadowing future designated hitter rules, the experiment was conducted only in the American League, as National League President Warren Giles was reported to be opposed to the adoption of the rule. As a mere spring training experiment, the rule change would not provide any significant moments. However, that did not stop one Associated Press writer from imagining what might happen if it became a permanent part of baseball's rulebook. Quoting from a March 6, 1967 AP article, It's October 1972, and Willie Mays, who is 41 years old, has 713 lifetime home runs, just one less than Babe Ruth's career total. The Giants and Dodgers are tied for the National League lead and are playing each other on the last day of the season. The Dodgers lead 1-0 in the eighth inning, and Mays, used only as a pinch hitter now, bats for the pitcher. He lines the second pitch into the left field stands, tying the game in Ruth's record. The crowd goes crazy, but they are waiting for the next inning. The Dodgers go out in order in the ninth, and so do the first two Giants, and then what? this maze pinch hits again another homer for willie who breaks ruth's record and wins the pennant for the giants Wow, that was a very dramatic scenario envisioned there. While this fairy tale did not come true, Hank Aaron, the man who broke ruth's record spent his last two seasons serving as a dh for the milwaukee brewers so that was uh, another one we could have added to Eddie Stanky's ledger for rules initiated if that had caught on, but it did not quite. However, they were only uh, several years away from the full-time designated hitter that we know and some of us love and others of us will rage against until our dying day. You know, everybody needs a project, Ben. Yes. All right. Well, speaking of projects, we talked on our last episode about how Joe West's retirement project appears to be editing his own Wikipedia page. We subsequently and briefly became part of that story when we were added to Joe West's Wikipedia page. The Redditors were desperate for another source that they could use to link to this self-editing controversy on West's Wikipedia page. And so for a time, his page read in 2023, it was theorized that West was involved in editing his own Wikipedia page. And the source cited was episode 1966 of Effectively Wild, which was sort of silly because we just discussed the Reddit thread on the podcast. We didn't add any new information. So that has since been removed from his page. However, this episode of Effectively Wild may soon be added to his page because the plot is about to thicken. Now, the Wikipedia account purporting to be Joe West, which was called Crew Chief 22, had eventually threatened legal action after having his changes reverted. And in one of those messages, he had mentioned an email address that was formerly associated with what seemed to be Joe West's website once upon a time. So I sent an email to that address, introducing myself and explaining that I was a writer and podcaster and was hoping he could confirm or deny that he was the one making the edits, and if so, giving him a chance to explain why he wanted to. So sometime later, he responded and said he'd be happy to talk, and then I got this call. Yeah, um, I'll tell you how this came about. I, I hadn't looked at Wikipedia in probably 10 years. And uh, so I went to do a speech in Southern California, and the guy said some stuff introducing me that didn't make sense. Ah. And so it took me a while to figure out where he got the information. So uh, I'm, you know, just out of the blue one day, I just picked it. It was only a couple of days ago. I, I read the Wikipedia, Wikipedia story, and the thing that kind of jumped out at me was where it says something about me and to- Joe Torrey having a fight. Right. That didn't happen. How did it happen? Joe Torrey followed Scott Grinder off the field in Atlanta after an inning or a game-ending call. And when he walked into the walkway in the old Fulton County Stadium, you got to realize we got to go out down the first baseline past the dugout. And when Torrey followed us into this walkway, I turned around and pushed him. 
and said, you don't belong here. Mm-hmm. And he realized he didn't belong there. So he immediately left. Didn't argue, didn't do nothing. The only thing he did do was go tell the press that I pushed him. Uh-huh. Well, the press, the press immediately came to my locker room and said, Joe Torrey said that you pushed him. I said, I most certainly did. I told him he didn't belong there. <laughs> and that was it. Now, what followed that, you read, you've read it, right? Yes. That, none of that happened. Mm-hmm. We didn't yell at each other. We didn't. I just said, point blank, you don't belong here. And he left. I got suspended for three days with pay because Feeney thought what I did, I shouldn't have put my hands on him. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yes. Tory got fined. And neither one of us wanted the other one to get penalized. We, you know, I wasn't mad at Joe. Joe wasn't mad at me. In fact, Joe was going after the other umpire. Uh-huh. You see what I'm saying? So none of that happened. And there were some other things on the page. I, I know that there's an issue with the data that says uh, in Oral Hershiser's game where he set the record for consecutive scoreless innings that it didn't have you behind home plate, which you were, right? Yeah, I was behind home plate. And the funny part about that game was the Dodgers lost the game. Yes. It went extra innings and they lost. <laughs> <laughs> Any, anyway, but there's there's other I mean there's other issues in there like the deal with the Tory incident. Uh, West was suspended for three days, right? Mm-hmm. Tory was fine. It says in a follow up that Chubb Feeney reduced my fine. There was no fine, so how could he reduce it? There was no fine. Then it says Dennis Cook situation. I wrote while attempting to break up a fight. West threw Phil's pitcher Dennis Cook to the ground. That's all I changed. Mm-hmm. All right? They wouldn't. They they reverted that. Then the labor situation where MLB accepted the American League resignations. I corrected the whole thing. I said MLB accepted the American League resignations, but fired 13 National League umpires. They didn't accept their reservations or resignations. They fired them mm-hmm. because the league president refused to accept the resignations, Leonard Coleman. Mm-hmm. And in fact, he got near a fistfight with Sandy Alderson over it, but that's beside the point. <laughs> and then I wrote, after arbitrations and appeals, it says Major League Baseball settled with the union. That didn't happen either. The court ordered Major League Baseball to reinstate 12 of the umpires with back pay and service time. They refused to put that in there. And then I wrote, Two of the original fired umpires, Frank Pulley and Richie Garcia, were hired as supervisors. Two of the guys they fired were hired as supervisors. Mm-hmm. And I deleted everything about the severance pay because it wasn't accurate, because some of the umpires that were let go weren't eligible for severance pay under the collective bargaining agreement. Mm-hmm. So I deleted that because that's, that's not accurate. So you were just trying to correct the record on some of these things? Right. Yeah. Then it got down to 2002 to 2021. I changed the part where it said, I hold, it said, holds patents on the West Fest, right? I changed the word to held patents because the patents have run out. Mm-hmm. And I deleted everything about Colbreth and Davidson suspensions, not mine, Davidson and Colbreth suspensions, because it, it, it had no relevance to my suspension. Somebody's just trying to glorify that, and I don't think it's fair to belittle or expose Colbert or Davidson to anything I did. Mm-hmm. So I just deleted that. And it said, West later claimed Pavlovon had initiated first contact. I never did that. When they called me, Joe Torrey, who was my boss at the time, said, I wish you hadn't put your hands on him. I said, I said immediately, 
For what he did, Joe, you're lucky I didn't hit him in the mouth. <laughs> I never said I did. I didn't initiate it. For he got in my way going back to second base. I see. All right. The other part it says uh, inappropriate comments towards Adrian Beltre. I was doing an interview with Bob Nightingale, mm-hmm. and and the comments I made were about Adrian Beltre being the biggest complainer because Adrian Beltre. If the ball bounced and he was the third baseman, he would look at the guy umpiring third bases. That looks like a strike to me. <laughs> he, he was always having a good time out there. Yes. And one time I called a pitch on him right down the middle of the plate. I called it a strike, and he said, oh, that's outside. And of course, he's he's, he's playing around, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a said, fun you know guy. What? I said, Adrian, you might be a great ball player, but you're a horseshit umpire. <laughs> and he laughed. He laughed like hell. So I told Nightingale that story. Uh-huh. Well, the backdrop to that is Rob Manfred hates Nightingale. <laughs> <laughs> so when the article came out, the way he wrote it, he didn't make it clear that it was in jest. I see. Uh-huh. And so Manfred suspended me for that too. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. All right. So then I got to the Billy Wagner, the Duca story. And in that, I wrote that I denied that ever happening as did Billy Wagner in his deposition to the court. They took that out. Then there's a, then of course they go into your history of making calls and how ballplayers had a poll and I was in the top 2% and also in the bottom 5% and all this stuff, right? I didn't try to correct any of that, uh-huh. but I did remove the part about Mark Williams, some Boston aficionado, whatever the hell he is from University of Boston. Because he has no bearing, and and he doesn't have any credibility saying that any umpire missed any pitch. Because the last five years I worked, we didn't have an umpire that scored less than 95% on their evaluations behind the plate. According to MLB's zone evaluation system. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I took all of his stuff out. And then the Chuck Yarbrough comments about my country music album, like, I squashed that because that was just a, a takeoff of him trying to be a big shot. Uh-huh. And then, uh, and finally, the, I think this was the coup de grace. Uh-huh. They wouldn't let me say that my wife, Jean Mason, had passed away. Yes, I saw that. And I'm I, sorry to hear and, that. And I had and I had married Rita Hoff. Mm-hmm. So that's the coup de grace. I mean, that was that was enough. So I've been getting emails from half a dozen people from. Wikipedia, mm-hmm. one of them saying uh, something uh, that I don't have the right to change in it. Well, who does have the right to change it? Right. I, I assume you weren't aware that Wikipedia has a policy against people editing their own pages, right? Because it's kind of a crowdsourced encyclopedia where editors make these changes, but they don't want people making changes to their own pages uh, because, you know, they could Well, then, then pick things. up the phone and call me. Right, which is why I wanted to get in touch with you, because the interesting thing about Wikipedia is that there has to be some sort of other source so that the editors of Wikipedia can then cite that source. So you talking to oh, me, of, that yeah, could be a well, that source. Was enough, <laughs> but, there was another one. Mm-hmm. About Hawk Harrelson said that I needed a suspension. Mm-hmm. The announcer for the White Sox, after I called two balks and Burley said, Joe West is in need of a suspension. Hawk Harrelson said that, right? Mm-hmm. So I wrote in uh, one of the things they deleted was I wrote, Hawk Harrelson was 
the author of that statement. And Hawk Allison actually said was he, he was inducted in, with the Ford Frick Award in the, the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Remember when he got that? Mm-hmm. And he said there's two things you have to do to be a major league player. One of them is you have to catch the ball, and the other one is don't mess with Joe West. <laughs> right. I mean, he, he actually said that. <laughs> uh-huh. And, I, I mean, and that's funny, you know. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't put that in there either, so I don't, you know. <laughs> I see. Well, I, I think you're talking to me. That could constitute a source that Wikipedia's editors could then cite to change some of these things if, if it's uh, corroborated. So I think that would be the way that they would prefer that a public figure would go about changing things on their pages. But I can understand why when you saw those things, your impulse was to change them yourself. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that, that's ridiculous. I mean, and and I don't, I don't mind them printing negative things about me, mm-hmm. but they don't have the right to print something about Bob Davidson or Fielding Colbert when they had nothing to do with anything in my career. And they don't have the right to print stuff that's totally not true, like the thing of cursing at each other, punching and rolling around on the ground, and the fight was broken up by a clubhouse attendant spraying you with a, a fire extinguisher. That never have a who, Whoever wrote that is lying. I mean, that's detriment. I mean, you can call Joe Torrey and ask him that. Yeah, I don't know what sources those were citing. I, I assume that they were probably citing some previous report and perhaps the details were wrong in some other story about this. And then that kind of gets cemented into the Wikipedia page. So it's it's certainly not a 100 percent accurate. But I think the editors, they do try to make it accurate. So to hear this uh, conflicting information, I'm sure they would be willing to take that into account. It's just uh, the method that that needs to happen. I actually wrote them back and said, if you're not going to print the truth, just take my name completely out of Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't need to be in there. <laughs> right. uh, people weren't sure initially whether it was really you making these changes because anyone could have created an account called Crew Chief 22 and, and made those changes themselves. So that's why I wanted to get in touch with you to confirm that it, it was <laughs> the real Cowboy Joe. I'm just, I'm, I'm just trying to correct it, make mm-hmm. the record straight. And again, if they got something to say bad about me, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But tell the truth, you know, or tell to what you believe is the truth. Yeah. It's like the polls, the polls of the ballplayers. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's typical of a, a hundred player poll that you take. Mm-hmm. Most ball players would never want to get into an umpire's poll because they're afraid an umpire might find out. I mean, let's be realistic. And the guys that that like certain umpires, it's because they haven't had a run in with them. Mm -hmm. I mean, so I I don't I don't have a problem with anything that they write in there because this perfect example is Hawk Harrelson. When I worked the World Series in 2005, he thought I was the greatest umpire in the world. When I called two balls on Mark Burley, he wanted to cut my head off. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Well, he wasn't the most unbiased source. <laughs> so. Oh my God! But <laughs> but but you got to understand that. And he's and one of the craziest things is when I first started in baseball, Jack Buck hated me. He hated me. <laughs> and then after a few years, he invited me to go to a banquet with him. Uh huh. So something happened where. You know, and I, I'm sure he hated me because when I when I started, I must have kicked out a cardinal somewhere, and he was probably one of Jack's favorites. You know, <laughs> right? But Al Al Barlett came to me and he said uh, he doesn't like you. He hates you. <laughs> <laughs> no, Barlett is my supervisor. I'm going. 
I never even spoke to Jack Buck. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> well, but, and those things happen, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And I get that. Yeah. They just have a, a process in place just so that people cannot assert anything on their own pages without any kind of corroboration. Obviously, you're Joe West. You're an authority on Joe West. But anyone could create an account and claim to be Joe West and change something on your page that was equally inaccurate. So they're trying to protect the accuracy. In this case, maybe there were some mistakes. And I think on the whole, they want these pages to be truthful. So I'm sure that they'll be happy to correct things. Uh, if they can confirm that, it's just that it has to happen in a different way. <laughs> so, and something like the pitch calling accuracy, for instance, you know, if if someone releases a study, obviously there are different ways you can interpret that data, and, and the public doesn't have access to MLB's internal evaluation. So, I don't doubt what you're saying yeah, but about it, that. But but if so, if someone if, here's the funny thing: this robotic umpire, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. It misses seven percent of the pitches. They already know that. They already know that. The last two years, maybe three, the last two years I worked, we didn't have an umpire that missed 5% of the pitches that were graded by this machine that they're planning on using. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. And when when the robot misses a pitch, it doesn't call anything. Right. Yes. <laughs> that can be a problem. At least when the umpire misses a pitch, he calls something. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Right. Yes, there are certainly some kinks still being worked out there. Well, and you know what? They did the same thing with tennis. They did the same thing with the NFL. Mm-hmm. And the crazy thing about it, when they put they put the replay system in Major League Baseball, they spent $45 million to prove that we're 99% right on the basis. So what good did that do? I would have rather you put $10 million in the umpire development program mm-hmm. so that these kids coming through the minor leagues could work long enough to get there because they don't pay him anything. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'm I'm off on a tangent now, but I'm. <laughs> no, that's okay. It, it breaks my it breaks my heart the way they spend their money. <laughs> <laughs> well, I assume you didn't expect this to uh, to generate as much attention as it did, but I'm uh, glad I could uh, get to the bottom of it here. So I do appreciate it. Well, I don't, I don't know what kind of attention you're talking about. All I'm doing is getting a few emails that, that are mad at me for doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> right. There is a, there's a, a site called Reddit, which is a, sort of a forum where, where people can post various threads about baseball or, or anything else in the world. And there was a very popular thread on the baseball subreddit where this came to people's attention after you made the edits. and. There are hundreds of uh, comments and thousands of people responding to it, trying to figure out whether it was really you. <laughs> so that's why I reached out to you to try to get an answer on that. Well, then you can put it on there that you talk to me that nobody else has. <laughs> All right. Will do. I think people you're, will be you're welcome. glad to know. You're welcome to do that. All right. <laughs> and uh, well, um, I'm, uh, I'm sorry it came to this, and I didn't mean to create a stir. I just wanted it corrected. Yeah, I understand. And again... The stuff that I deleted didn't have any business being on my bio. And I mean, uh, again, you know, the, the Yarbrough guy, he don't like my singing. That's okay. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's pretty pathetic. Uh, I got a thing the other day, and I, I started to answer it. It was saying, said something about I was a horrible umpire. This, this came from this stuff. I was a horrible umpire. I always survived this long, blah, 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 blah. And I started to write back. And in the middle of writing it back, I'm, I'm writing, uh, I had uh, 135 postseason games. <laughs> There's only one other person that had that many. And I had uh, 5,460 games. 
nobody's close to nobody's in the hundred of that. And, and I'm a horrible umpire. And, and I'm thinking, <laughs> okay, how, how did I get that far along? You yeah, know? Well, yes, I, I assume you're used to hearing those things after 50 plus yeah. years. So <laughs> in, in your, <laughs> but, in your but, retirement, you should, uh, maybe you can start to tune it out. Maybe you can just. I, uh... <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no reason. If, if this little thing, this little tip right here got all this attention, something's really wrong. <laughs> well, you're a well-known figure in the game, so maybe maybe people miss you. Well, let me let me know what you what you write because I'd be interested to see what their response is. All right. Well, well, thank you, and and I hope you're enjoying your retirement. Otherwise, I hope you're enjoying your leisure time. Well, we are. My new wife played as a member guest this past weekend with Steve Ripley's wife, and they finished second. And you'd have thought they were the happiest kids in the world. (laughs) 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 It was wonderful to see the excitement on their faces. Great. Well, thanks again, Joe. It's good to talk to you, and and I'm sure that the editors will take a look at some of the things that you flagged and potentially change some of them. So it was maybe a roundabout way of uh, getting what you wanted to happen here happen. But well, I just don't want the stuff that's not true to be out there. Yeah, I don't think know. the editors do either. So if they are convinced that that that's the case, then I'm sure they will make those changes. No, I mean they 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 quoted they quoted a, sor- a source of the Tory incident that I had. Where I I said you don't belong here mm-hmm. from the Milwaukee Sentinel. Uh-huh. This happened in Atlanta. Hmm. It happened in Atlanta. It didn't happen in Milwaukee. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so whoever wrote the story had no idea what it was about. Yeah. So sometimes that inaccurate information can get publicly reported, and and then if there's no uh, source setting the record straight, then. That can show up on a Wikipedia page, but here you are setting the record straight. So <laughs> that should take care of it, I would imagine. I got a cute story for you, too. You'll like this. All right. I saw Rod, Rod Carew in Minneapolis mm-hmm. when uh, they retired Danny Gladden and Gardner's numbers. Or they had a special day for both of them. I don't know if they retired the numbers, but I think they did. Anyway, so I'm up there and I run into Rod Carew. Mm-hmm. Rod Carew says, I remember you. You kicked me out of a game. <laughs> I said, you're full of shit. (laughs) He said, yeah, you kicked me out of a game between the Dodgers and Anaheim when we were doing the uh, freeway series. Mm -hmm. I said, it wasn't me. I never worked that freeway series. I always worked spring training in Florida. (laughs) He swears to this day that I'm the guy that kicked him out. (laughs) Yeah. Memory could be fallible. We can misremember well, things sometimes. Well, that's a uh, yeah, misremember. <laughs> right. <laughs> I like that. That's a good word. I misremembered. <laughs> but he is, you know, what a sweetheart he is. He's a great guy. Yeah. And uh, but uh, this is him. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again, Joe. I I won't take up any more of your time. No, I was glad glad to talk to you. Thanks, Ben, for getting in touch with me. I appreciate it. So there you are, Reddit and Wikipedia, do with that what you will. Excellent sleuthing New York Metzelhead who started the thread. I have not done any research into most of the disputed claims that he brought up. I will only note that when he was mentioning the umpire accuracy rates of 95% or better, that's based on MLB's system, which is much more forgiving than the public systems. MLB's system, I believe, uses a greater margin for error and also makes some corrections and processing after the fact. So he may very well be right about what MLB's system says, though that doesn't necessarily mean that MLB 
Penelope system is correct. Secondly, I did look into the Rod Carew ejection story, and I believe Joe West is right on that one. The umpire in question was Jim Scott. This was on April 1st, 1979. Here's the story from UPI. Carew had words with umpire Jim Scott when the umpire called two strikes against him, and after the seven-time American League batting champion swung and missed at a third strike, he yelled at Scott again and was ejected, prompting a loud roar from the sellout crowd. That was in an Angels-Dodgers exhibition game prior to opening day. When this week started, I really didn't expect to end it by talking to Joe West about his Wikipedia page. You just never know where we're going to go. Sometimes the combination of baseball and Reddit can really be beautiful. This is peak off-season content. Before we finish, a couple other follow-ups. We talked about the MLBPA logo excluding pitchers because, like the MLB logo, it features a pitcher and pitchers don't bat anymore for the most part. I was hip to the fact that the NFLPA logo seems to feature a running back holding the ball, though I suppose anyone on a football field could technically run with the ball. Doesn't really happen for some players. Then again, I guess any pitcher could technically bat. When I was doing my stat blast about retired numbers, I lumped Frank Robinson's retired number with Cleveland in with some other players who played with teams late in their careers and got their numbers retired. Steve Garvey with the Padres, Wade Boggs with the Devil Race, etc. Didn't mention, though, that Frank Robinson became the first black manager in MLB when he was with Cleveland as their player manager in 1975. So that's certainly a reason to retire his number with that organization. One number-related fact check of Joe West, unlike Rod Carew, Dan Gladden and Ron Gardenhire have not had their numbers retired by the Twins, but they are in the Twins Hall of Fame. Also, one more late submission for ways that baseball is different from other team sports. This was from Bobby, who pointed out, one thing I've always thought was interesting about baseball, though possibly not unique, was that if you tell me what happened on the last play, I can tell you who won a baseball game. Game ends on an out, the team that was in the field won. Game ends on a run, the team that was batting won. I guess there is the corner case where there's both on the same play, like a run scoring on a sacrifice, but they still happen in sequence. I don't think that's true in other sports to such an extreme. Yeah, for team sports, I think there's some truth to that, a lot of team sports at least. Also, congrats to Chris Oxpring, our guest on episode 1956, the 45-year-old Australian pitcher. He made Australia's World Baseball Classic roster. He told us after we recorded that he hoped and expected to, but that it wasn't quite confirmed yet. Well, now it is. So you can watch him going up against the best big leaguers yet again. And lastly, we got a message from listener Matt who wanted to know, now that we've retired the team win total predictions at the end of the preview segments, which teams historically had had their previewers shoot highest and lowest relative to their actual win totals. On the whole, as I noted, our previewers tended to be over-optimistic by 2.2 wins or so on average. Well, I can tell you, most optimistic, our Rangers guests overshot the Rangers actual win totals by an average of 7.1 wins. And on the pessimistic side, our Guardians guests undershot the team's win total by 3.7 wins on average. I'll put every team's figure in a spreadsheet and link to it on the show page if you're interested, but I mention that because guess what? The next two teams in our preview series are, in fact, the Guardians and the Rangers. So we will aim to bring you those two teams early next week. For now, you can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild and signing up to pledge some monthly or yearly amount to help us keep the podcast going and help us stay ad-free while also getting yourself access to some perks. The following five listeners have already done so. Christopher Luke, David Bullman, Ben O'Dell, Adam Crow, and Brennan Jordan. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for supporters at all tiers. You can chat with your fellow listeners about all things baseball and beyond. 
You also get access to monthly bonus episodes, playoff live streams, discounts on merch and ad-free Fangraphs memberships, and much, much more. Patreon.com slash Effectively Wild. Patreon supporters can contact us via the Patreon site. Anyone can contact us via email at podcast at Fangraphs.com. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. Have a wonderful weekend, and we will pick up the previews next week. And now all of the odds are in my favor. Something's bound to begin It's got to happen Happen sometime Maybe this time